בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, happy to be here with a dedicated few that show up on the Goy holiday of uh, Independence Day, 4th of July. You know, sometimes you get so preoccupied with uh, Torah, Zikwe Rabim, Am Yisrael, you forget about the world that's around you. So honestly, I didn't even realize it was 4th of July until about five minutes before I got here. Uh, and someone told me they're not coming because it's 4th of July. So I said, I don't know, Hashem works on 4th of July, so why are we not working? We are supposed to and commanded to learn Torah all the time. Even more so at times like this, Number one, because this is not our holiday. This is not to say that we're not uh, grateful to Hashem for providing us a place to live where we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion to some extent and uh, the ability to succeed even in the exile. But yet we're always reminded that this is still not salvation. We're always reminded this is still not the days of greatness, the days of freedom, the days that we've been waiting for for over 2,000 years. And the things that remind us that we're actually still not home whether you live in Israel, or you live in America, or you live in London, or you live in Africa, you live in all these different places, Baruch Hashem, that we have students that learn our Torah, Baruch Hashem, on a weekly basis, and send us letters and emails and questions, and a lot of different things that uh, we try, Baruch Hashem, with uh, Hashem's help always, to help each and every single soul as, as best as we can. We're still always reminded that we're not home. This is not salvation. This is not the geula. This is not the good times. And the way that we're reminded, unfortunately, is that there is no end. There's no end to the suffering. There's no end to the torture. There's no end to the murdering of our people, either by our own hands or by the goyim. I'm sad to say that today, I spent some time being very sad because I found out that another another one of our people died. Aaron, I believe his last name is uh, um, Nachum or Nachman. Nachman. Aaron Nachman. I didn't know him personally. He's a religious Jew, part of Chabad in Boca Raton. And uh, he also liked to uh, fight uh, martial arts. And Hashem uh, Elachem, unfortunately, just a few hours ago, I found out that his soul was stolen from us. By one of these Rishayim, one of these Rishayim that couldn't control their evil inclinations, decided to murder him just last night. To see and hear our people being murdered is always bad. To see and hear them die 
is always bad. When it happens just a couple of miles from your house, it hurts a little more. You see that Hashem is not happy. Just last week, I was notified that three young kids in New York all died within the same 36 hours out of drug overdose. Young kids, 16, 17, 18 years old, Aaron was only 25 years old. Hashem in Komet Davav. Hashem will avenge his blood. So, first off, I want to sure to go to Ilui Nishmatam, all of the people that we've mentioned, all of the people that we didn't mention. Be'ezat Hashem, in the Bed Din of Shemaim, they'll have mercy on them. They'll have, they'll welcome them with love. And Be'ezat Hashem, it will help each and every one of us to realize that we're not here and we're not promised tomorrow. When the students of Chazal asked them, Kvodarav, why do you say that a Jew needs to do tshuva every day? Why do you have to do tshuva every day? And he explains, it's because we're not promised tomorrow. So you have to do tshuva every day simply because you don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. You want to make sure that before you leave this world, you've done tshuva. Now, when I posted this online to let the people know that anti-Semitism is not only alive and well, unfortunately, but it's getting closer and closer to home. Not just in Boca Raton, not just in Miami, not just in New York, not just in London, not just in Israel. It's literally everywhere. It's literally everywhere we see our people murdered in cold blood, abused, insulted, beat up, persecuted. But we quickly sweep it under the carpet after a few internet posts, a few tweets, a few fundraisers, and we move on. It's time we ask ourselves, why? Why are all these things happening? Why are there so many people hate us? Is there proof that this is all anti-Semitism? Or maybe he just got into with the wrong crew. Maybe somebody mistook the house, tried to rob it, and he got in the way since he was a martial artist. He tried to fight it off, and maybe that happened. Maybe this, maybe that. When I posted it immediately, a couple of people ask, is there any proof that this is anti-Semitism? And I said, yes, there is proof it's anti-Semitism. It's called Torah. In Mount Sinai, Hashem Barach met with Moshe Rabbeinu. And he gave him the entire Torah, Bukhaba. He gave him the entire Torah, both the written Torah, the oral Torah. And he gave him all of the laws, all of the alachot. Alacha means it's law. Alacha means it's from Shemaim, from God. 
Halakha means it's indisputable. And one of the halachot, Mimoshemi Sinai, that we got on Mount Sinai, is Esav Sonet Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. This is an halacha. This is a law of nature. This is a law of the world. It's not a possibility. It's not a likelihood. It's a fact. It's a reality. This does not necessarily mean that everyone that's a non-Jew hates Jews, because obviously, as you know, I have many non-Jew students that love Am Yisrael, love Hashem, love the Torah, sometimes more than many Jews. They're not Esav. Esav hates Yaakov. But the ones that don't hate Yaakov, the Rambam calls them Chasdei Umot Olam, the righteous amongst the nations. These are the Noahides that are the righteous amongst the nations, the love Torah, love mitzvot. Many of them want to convert to Judaism. Some of them can't, but still want to obey and, uh, and observe the Torah completely. And these are the lovers of Am Yisrael, and these are going to have an amazing share of the world to come. The righteous amongst the nations are going to have an amazing share of the world to come. The Rambam says that the seven Noahide laws are relatively logical. You don't need Torah to know that you shouldn't murder. You don't need Torah to know that you shouldn't steal. You don't need Torah to know that you shouldn't pray to some statue you bought from Chinatown. You don't need Torah for that. You just need a brain that Hashem gave you. That's all you need. On one end, this is the reason since the seven Noahide laws and all of the ethical laws, whether it be respecting your parents, and other things that are just generally logical. On one end, this is the reason why a penalty for violating the seven laws of Noah is much harsher than violating many of the mitzvot. If a Jew steals, if a Jew steals, the penalty, and he gets caught, the penalty is that he has to pay double. If he stole a hundred, he has to pay two hundred. Unless he didn't get caught and he decided to return it, then he just returns what he stole. But if he stole and then he got caught, he has to pay double. That's the halakha. On the other hand, a non-Jew that stole a hundred or two hundred or two hundred million, it's the same thing. According to the Torah, it's death penalty. It's heavenly death penalty. Obviously, we don't kill anyone today for, for stealing or really for most things. But the point being is that the punishment is much harder, much harsher for a Noahide than it is for a Jew. Number one, because they have much less responsibility, much less mitzvot. And two, since they're all relatively simple, logical mitzvot, to not do them, it's really a war against God. It's real, God really takes it personal. Yeah, I gave you just a little bit and you... And you, and you do against that, just a few things I gave you? So that's one end. The second thing about Noahides that we need to know, and they need to know themselves, is the Rambam says that not everybody that keeps these seven law, Noahide laws is going to have a, a Lama Ba. Not all of them. Why? If you keep the seven Noahide laws because God said it, then you are considered amongst the righteous amongst the nations. You're considered amongst the chasdei umot ha'olam, 
you're wise, you're righteous, you have Olam Abba, you're amazing. On the other hand, if you just keep those mitzvot because you're a nice guy, you don't steal because you're a millionaire already, you don't need to steal. You don't kill because it's not allowed, you're scared of being arrested. You don't worship an idol because, eh, it's silly. And so on and so forth. You're just keeping it because it's logical. The Rambam says not only do they not get Olam Abba, but they're actually considered the tipshim amongst the nations, the fools amongst the nations. Why the fools? Because they're doing all the work without getting paid. You're already getting all, you're already doing all the work. Why not at least get paid for it? The reward of Olam Abba of eternity. So this is why some of the Rabbanim among, you know, around the world are trying to get the non-Jews to get to do tshuva in their own way and get closer to Hashem and do what's right in the eyes of Hashem for Hashem. Not because it's logical. But back to our issue of us being reminded that we're surrounded by the enemy in exile. Sometimes the enemy is within and sometimes the enemy is around us. We're reminded by these murders. We're reminded by just all the difficulty that's around us. Even the sinners amongst our own people that wanted to celebrate this gal nefesh, this disgusting um, uh, gay parade. They wanted to celebrate the gay parade in Chicago. And three of them went to Chicago to celebrate the gay parade and they brought Israeli flags that had the rainbow on it, the gay rainbow on it, and they got thrown out. Because even the homosexuals don't want to accept Jews. This is just a reminder. We're not like you. We're not supposed to be like you. Supposed to, you're chosen, you're not. This is a reminder for those three people you're not supposed to be like them. You're chosen. You're Hashem's princes. You're not supposed to be talking about your sexuality and your desires that you can't control and celebrate a war against God. You're not supposed to do that. And even they themselves are telling you you're not supposed to do that. Very similar to the story I told you one time that a friend of mine told me. He says he got arrested one time. He was a very, very established, successful businessman. He said he got arrested for something stupid one time. Silly, ridiculous. He got into a fight with his girlfriend or something. She called the cops. And the cops in New York, they don't, uh, they don't think twice about arresting. They see someone. If he's alive, if he's moving, gets arrested. Why? doesn't make a difference. We'll figure it out in court. So he gets arrested for nothing. They don't even know. They don't even give him anything. They just arrested him. Sits in jail, I think, almost uh, 28 hours, 29 hours, a long time. And uh, he says that, I realized that I have a problem. When I was sitting amongst all of these gangsters, you know, they, they put you in, uh, there's two cells. There's central bookings and then there's an actual cell. So in a central booking place, there's like you're in one cell with 30, 40 other, you know, amazing people. And everybody smells good, and everybody's established and sophisticated scholars. So he says, I'm surrounded by these scholars, 
And uh, a couple of these scholars that have scars on their faces, like they just came out of the movie Scarface, they look at me and say, so what are you in for? Because I'm the only guy wearing a suit. Everybody else is wearing a little different clothes. Different. Clothes. Not exactly Wall Street. Ask him, what are you in for? He said, I got into a fight with my girlfriend. And they all look at me funny, he says. And they asked me, what do you mean you got into a fight with your girl? You killed her? He says, no, I didn't kill her. You beat her up? You broke a few bones? No, I just yelled at her. And she got really upset. She called the cops. Wait a minute. You're here with us? What do you, what do you, you wear a suit where you work somewhere, you look like it's not a $5 suit. What do you do? I work on Wall Street. And I have this and I have that and I have this. And he says, well, I'm telling him the story. I'm starting to feel worse about myself. Because they're all looking at me funny. In the beginning, I thought maybe they're trying to rob me, but I don't have any money on me. So I said, okay, Baruch Hashem. But they're still looking at me funny. He said, at the end of the story, I told them what I have and what I built and what I did and what I did. And these two scar-faced looking guys say to me, what's wrong with you? What are you doing here? Why are you here? And they keep asking me questions that I didn't understand. I'm like, what do you mean, what? I just told you for the last 25 minutes. The girlfriend, she scratched me in the face, and then I, I yelled at her, and she called the cops. He goes, no, no, we heard this stuff, but why are you here? Why are you here with us? We are criminals. We sell drugs. He murdered a couple of people. This guy is one of the biggest drug dealers in Queens. This guy is a thief. This guy is a gangster. This guy is this. Everyone's got a sheet. It's a rap sheet the size of the Megillah. We are here every weekend. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. You have the whole world in your hand. You have a business. You have a real life. You went to college. You did this. You did that. And you're here with us. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand? You're not supposed to be here. And he says to me, I wanted to die. When the gangster explained to me how miserable my life really is and how much of a lie I'm living, I wanted to die. Because he was right. I was given an opportunity to be different, but yet I acted the same as the rest. Am Israel is called the chosen people. By who? By the one and only above. But yet, there's a price to pay to be amongst the chosen people. In this week's parasha, Parashat Balak, we are reminded of this price. In the beginning of the parasha, it says, Vayar Balak ben Tzipot, kol asher asai Yisrael ha'emori. Balak, the son of Tzipor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorite. He heard about the war. He heard about how these people, they used to be slaves, but somehow miraculously took over the biggest nation in the world, the strongest army in the world, and for the first and last time in history, the slave became the master. Never before and never again did a slave ever become a master. But here an entire nation 
that were servants for 210 years and had 86 years of hardcore slavery that we cannot even imagine, somehow, some way, miraculously became the master to the point where the former master begged them to leave by giving them money. Begged them to leave by making each and every single one of them rich. This is why Amisai left Mitzrayim rich. Each and every single person was a millionaire. But how do you go from being a slave with broken bones, missing eyes, missing limbs, weak from the slavery and lack of food and nutrition, to now you are a powerful army that just took down the Amorites. And Balak says, I'm worried. I'm worried about this nation because their power is not natural. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a slave is somehow going to become the master. It doesn't, become, doesn't make sense that a slave without weapons somehow won wars. It doesn't make sense. There has to be something. And he asks and he asks and he investigates and he finds out that there's a person by the name of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is connected to the one above which Balak also believes in. Only difference is when Moshe Rabbeinu says something, the one above makes it happen. He says he has the power of speech. I need to find someone who also has the power of speech. There has to be something else to fight it. And he finds the wicked prophet Bilam. He says Bilam also is a prophet. Go find him and tell him to come help us. Tell him we need him to curse this nation before they come and they beat us too. So here we see that Balak, although he's not threatened by the Jews, they're not coming his way, they're not bothering him, they're not attacking him, they're not disturbing him, they're not even sending him tweets on the internet. Nothing. They're not writing about him. They're not talking about him. Nothing. But he's bothered by the existence of Am Yisrael and their success. And he says, this I must end. And I will use everything I possibly can to stop it. So when you go to Bilam, tell him I'll pay him whatever price he wants. Name it. This is one of the many places we see that Esav sonet Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. Not because it makes sense. Not because it's logical. But it's instilled within them because this is the test. So Am Yisrael does not need to wait for the investigative reports the journalists and all of the media out there to come out with proofs of why these murder Hashem Yerachem that happened last night happened. We don't need proofs. We have proofs. It's called Alakha. Hashem instilled into our haters to hate us. Why? 
to protect us. He needs the goyim to hate us because he needs to protect us. Because unfortunately, despite the fact that the goyim hate us, we still try to be like them. We still try to assimilate with them. We still try to be next to them, emulate them, celebrate with them. Even holidays like 4th of July, that has absolutely nothing to do with Judaism, Unfortunately, the vast majority of American Jews are celebrating today and they are not in a Shiur Torah like you. They're not. They're celebrating a day, an Independence Day, to a country that does not belong to them. To a place where the Prophet Jeremiah says, this will be Edom. Where Hashem is going to take us out of here. Like He took us out of Egypt. This does not mean that we're ungrateful. It's just a reality. So now, when most Jews are celebrating with the Goyim, generation after generation, one holiday becomes another, Fourth of July becomes Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving eventually becomes Easter or Christmas. And unfortunately, many of the Jews have gone so far from Hashem Barach that they feel 100% comfortable having a Hanukkah tree. Thinking that this is just a nice thing to have. When I first heard about it, I was around 11 years old. My American Jewish friend told me, oh yeah, I'm so excited. Hanukkah is coming. In Israel, we weren't really so excited about Hanukkah coming, other than the fact that we're going to eat some sufganiyot, the little donuts. I wouldn't call it excited. It's one time a year we have these donuts. It's delicious. It's great. But it's not exactly the highlight of my life. So I asked him, why are you so excited? Oh, we get so many presents around the tree. And I said, excuse me, what do you mean you get presents? I didn't ask about the tree first. I asked the presents first just to see what the secret is. I was 11. So what do you mean you get presents? He goes, we get presents. We get a present for every day. I said, I get a souvenir every day. The whole concept of presence on Hanukkah was not necessarily an Israeli thing. It's an American thing. Similar to the Goim. Because they get presents on Christmas. The only thing I could hear about from the sages of Sipurah Sadiqim is what they give their kids is maybe some chocolate on Hanukkah. But there's no stories of presents. At least not that I heard of. Maybe there is, but I never heard it. So I found out about these eight presents in America. I said, wow, your parents must be rich. He goes, yes, our tree is amazing. It's all white. And I said, okay, yeah, back to this tree thing. What do you mean you have a tree? He goes, yeah, we have a Hanukkah tree. I said, what do you, what's a Hanukkah tree? I'm 11 years old. I've celebrated Hanukkah my whole life. I remember about five or six years of it. I never saw a tree. What is this Hanukkah tree? And he described to me something that I saw in the mall. Only there they called it a Christmas tree. And although it was disturbing, I quickly forgot and went back to the business of how to figure out how to convince my parents to get me some presents. But years would pass, and eventually I would learn from the Torah that not only is this Hanukkah tree not part of our tradition, not, tra- not part of our Masoret, but it also is against the Torah. 
to such an extent that it's the equivalent of idolatry. It's 100% idol worship. It's mentioned in the Torah several times. One of them by the prophet Jeremiah. One of them by Shemit Barach himself. Saying, when you get to the land, cut down the Asher trees. Cut down these trees. So Yeshua Benun asks, what do these trees do? What, they stole they uh, went with a different tree. They violated. What do these trees do? It's a tree. It stays there. There's no, someone worshipped this tree. The nations that lived here before, they worshipped the tree. So how is this the tree's fault? What? The tree told me, hey, come, come here. I'm, I'm good. This is a good spot. Come, come worship me. What did the tree do? It's irrelevant. Anything that was ever used for idolatry has lost its right to exist. It's called to'avat Hashem. It's called disgusting to Hashem. We are not allowed to benefit from idolatry in any way, shape, or form, which is also the reason and the argument we add to the whole issue of wigs today that come from natural hair. Unfortunately, there's not one human being on earth that can look me in the face and swear on their ulama ba that they know for sure, 100%, that the wig they bought from the store did not come from idolatry. Because the reality of it is that even if one hair, you have thousands amongst tens of thousands of hairs in every wig, it's a full head of hair. If one hair, one, not all of them, if 99.9% of the hairs come from some Russian jail, which is unethical to begin with, but it's not idolatry, comes from some Russian jail. But when I went to the factory, first in China, then it went to Italy, possibly stopped in France, then went back to London, eventually arrived in the United States. By the time it got there, all the custom-made jobs they made to fix your head, one hair sneaked up in there that came from the temples in India. Your entire head of hair is now 100% idol worship. Can anyone in the world put their olama ba on the line and look at themselves in the face? Who am I? look at themselves in the face and say, I know this is not from idolatry. I know that not even one hair in this wig is not idolatry. Can? No one can. That's the problem. So why do people take such big risks with their ulama ba? Because we are losing the battle. We are losing the battle of Gogu Magog that's within us. The battle amongst the nations and them hating us has always been and will always be. Hashem instilled hatred amongst the nations for us because He needs to protect us. We try to be like them even when they hate us. Imagine what we would do if they loved us. There would be no us. According to recent statistics, in many parts of the United States, there are over 75% assimilations. Over 75% of Jews are marrying goyim. Many of the people that come to me asking for help, 
come from intermarriage. Either their parents were intermarried or they themselves are intermarried and they finally realized, I have a problem. My wife is not Jewish. My husband is not Jewish. We have two kids. We have three kids. We're not just boyfriend-girlfriend. I can't just leave. I love him. I love her. I have something. What do we do? She believes. He believes. What do we do? Some are legitimate and some are fake. It's a family that Baruch Hashem and Be'ezrat Hashem have been working with over the past year. And Be'ezrat Hashem, we will take them, the whole family, to the Bed-Din in just the next few weeks. These people should have already been converted many years ago, but obviously they had their own tikkun and tests, and they withstood the test. And Be'ezrat Hashem, they'll join Am Yisrael very soon. On another hand, at the same time, another few came to me. One of them, I think maybe, maybe he will complete his conversion in about 50 years. Maybe. Maybe in 50 years. The other one, I just don't think they'll ever complete it. They have zero chance. And the other one is still unsure. How could it be that one comes after a year, finished, another one, 50 years, how could there be such differences? Didn't they all say the same story? Then they all say, we want your Torah, we want your God, we want your people. Didn't they all say the same story? Yes, they all say the same story. But the story is nice. We don't convert because of stories. We convert because of actions. Conversion has two parts. One, learn the material. Learn how to be a Jew. It's very basic needs to learn. You learn the basic halachot of all the mitzvot before you eat, the prayers, the holidays, Shabbat. Anyone that's truly dedicated can learn all of these things within a matter of a couple of months at most. Truly dedicated, a couple of months. It's not rocket science. Basic. You're not expected to be Moshe Rabbeinu or Rav Yashiv. Expected to just know basics of how to be a Jew day to day. A couple of months, two, three, four, five months. You're finished. That's the easy part. The hard part is making the life changes. It says be modest, you have to be modest. It says pray, you need to pray. It says have a munah, you have to have a munah. It says you have to have yira, you have to have yira. It says you have to read, you have to read. It says you have to be a Jew, you have to live like a Jew, you have to keep Shabbat, you have to make certain sacrifices, you have to change jobs, you have to change this, you have to change that. All types of tests. You have to do it. That's the tough part. Everyone talks a big game. Everyone knows about Moshe Rabbeinu. Everyone knows the story. Everyone wants the lectures. Easy. The information is easy. It's available. It's free. The hard part is doing it. And for all of those that are complaining about how they're having such difficulties in conversion, you should be reminded that the Jews have been fighting for existence, for the right to live, for over 3,300 years. Pogroms, inquisitions, holocausts have become a very much part of our life. We've been fighting to exist. For you to say that you're going to just join this special people just because you know a few laws 
And just because you started reading about Moshe Rabbeinu a couple of years ago and you just want to walk in and be part of the chosen people and think Hashem Bach is going to make your test that much easier than the rest of his people, you haven't learned enough to learn. It's not that easy to be a Jew. But then again, we are reminded when we see so many converts that are making sacrifices beyond our imagination. One of the most invigorating experiences that I've had since doing tshuva and helping people do tshuva is seeing the lives of converts, other converts. And the sacrifices they're willing to make. It's invigorating. It's amazing. It helps me do tshuva. The sacrifices they're willing to make, some of them, I wouldn't be able to do. And I don't think anybody else other than them would be able to do. They got the test because they can pass it. Baruch Hashem, I didn't get the test. I got something else instead. Everyone gets their own test. But then when the natural born Jews among us takes things for granted and says, ah, I'll be a Jew sometimes. I'll come to our lecture except if it's on 4th of July. I'll come to the shul except not on Shabbat. I'll pray, but only once a day. I'll learn, but only when you're teaching. Not if anyone else is teaching. Not if it's from a book. Not if it's with a group of people. A lot of people want one-on-one. Every day there's at least three to four requests. I want one-on-one teaching. I said, me too. If I taught every single person that wants one-on-one teaching, I wouldn't have enough time to even breathe, let alone to teach. Everyone wants custom-made. want to walk in, privileged. So Shem reminds us, you're not like the others. If you don't separate from them, I'll separate you. If you don't separate from them, I'll separate you. But when I separate you, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. You're not supposed to do those things. You're not supposed to be among them. When I separate you, it's going to hurt. He reminds us in the Torah several times. Balak is telling us here, I hate you. Bilam, who believed and spoke to God, says, I hate you. I hate you because I'm supposed to. It's my job to hate you. Because if I didn't hate you, you'd want to marry me. You'd want to celebrate with me. You'd want to be me. That's not your job. You're not supposed to be me. It's supposed to be you. It's supposed to be a light to the nations to bring everyone else up, not go down to their level. Which brings us to the current disaster in the world. In the Kiruv world today, unfortunately, we have many problems. Every day there's someone that decides that they need to rebuke the rebuker. They see Mechalel Shabbat lives next door to them for five, ten years. They never say a word. 
They see the guy that's cheating on his wife, they never say a word. They're friends with the guy that's stealing, they don't say nothing. They hang out with the guy that's eating taref on a daily basis. I'm going to mind my business, I'm not going to tell him. He'll find out on his own. They see the guy driving to shul on Shabbat, 20 years. No one says a word. I don't want to turn him off. Instead, they contact me. And they said, you know, you shouldn't rebuke people. It's not a good way to help people do tshuva. It's not a good way to help people get closer to Hashem. You're supposed to do it out of love. You're supposed to do it say nice things to them. Say that they're good and they're nice and they're wonderful and Hashem loves them and that's how you help people do tshuva. And usually my question is, how many people have you helped do tshuva? And the answer is always the same zero. Nothing. I said, how do you know this shita works then? He says, well, all the rabbis are using it. Look, Rabbi so Rabbi so-and-so, he's got 500,000 followers. He's got 100,000 followers. He has an organization that gets a million dollars a month in donations. He wrote 27 books. He did this. He did that. I said, okay, but how many people did tshuva? How many people did tshuva? He goes, well, if nobody did tshuva, how would he get all these donations? I said, donations don't mean somebody did tshuva. It just means donations. It means money came in. One thing has nothing to do with the other. But the worst part of it all is that even though this is expected, the most difficult part to deal with is when you have these people come to you from a place you never thought they will. They used to call themselves your friends. So this happens regularly. And just last night, this person that used to come to my house, show up unannounced, came and decided that it's time for him and his zero experience to rebuke me and tell me that I'm not doing right and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that and he knows more than me and he learned a lot more than me because he's religious from birth and even though he's only 18 or 19 years old that doesn't mean anything he knows more than me he's more learned than me and he did this and he knows that and he knows and he's got all these books he's got a whole library of books and he's knows all of these tzaddikim that he's met in his life. The problem is that tzaddikim don't know him. He knows them. He saw them from far. Or maybe they gave him a bracha, but they don't know him. He has the books, but he never read them. I know people like this my whole life. When I was in a business world, these people would come to my office. He said, yeah, yeah, I, I know uh, Carl Icahn and Eddie Lampert. And all these different bigwigs, all these different billionaires. I know this guy, I know that guy, this billionaire and this millionaire, and I'm friends with this guy, and this guy's my neighbor. I said, oh, wow, okay, good. So you want to go into the business? No problem, I'll give you a job. Why aren't you working at a big firm with all these contacts? Oh, no, no, I, I want to work at a small firm. There's always a nice excuse. I want to work at a small firm. I said, okay, you got it. Their loss is my benefit. 
Fall for it every time. You got this contact and that contact, no problem. Go. Ready? Go. My little daughter, she likes saying, ready? Go. I said, okay, ready? Go. So they start working. A week passes by, two weeks pass by, a month pass by, three months pass by, and I see that they're the least productive people every time. But they're very good at telling me about who they know. They know this one, they read that book, they met that one, and this one's their neighbor, and this one is this, and this one is that. So during the crisis of 2008, market crisis, for anyone that had a little bit of experience, knew that it was the biggest opportunity in the last century to invest. Invest when the market's down, not when the market's up. You buy when everyone's selling. It was an opportunity to buy if you had cash. We had an opportunity to buy a company that was worth at least a billion and a half dollars for 85 million. Nothing. Peanuts. You make money on day one. Now, I didn't have 85 million liquid. Need to raise the money. So where do I go? Hey, the couple of guys that know this one and that one and this one and that one, right? I said, hey, this is chump change to the people you know. These guys do $85 million deals each on a daily basis. Pick up the phone, call them, set up a meeting, I'll show up. Ready? Go. You got the context. You know Eddie and you know Steve and you know this one, you know that one. Ready? Go. You've been here for six months warming up my chair, collecting a salary. Fine, no problem. Now it's the time to use these contacts. You said you know this one and that one and this one and that one. Ready? Go! All of a sudden, it's a busy signal. All of a sudden, I don't know him that well. Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure if he's going to talk to me about it. Like, I don't know. Like, I, 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 all of a sudden, it's not like that, you know? It's not like that. It's always an excuse. That what, 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 what do you mean? You put on your resume. You know this one and that one. You, 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 you know them. What happened? Now it's go time. Go. Nothing. Zero. Same thing goes for all these heroes. I know this tzaddik, and I read this book, and I have a collection of books. Yeah. You know all these people? They know you. They know you. They're going to vouch for you. They tell you that what you're doing is right. Because if what you're doing is right, you have to rip half the Torah. Because if rebuke is hate, that means that everything that Moshe Rabbeinu said is hate. And then you have to rip the other half of the Torah. Because everything that Hashem said was rebuke also. Rebuke does not mean hate. Rebuke, rebuke comes out of love. You rebuke someone to correct them because it hurts you to see them failing. It hurts you to see them going the wrong direction. You see your son keep putting the puzzle the wrong way. You're not going to let him just continue wasting his life with the wrong way. Tell him, listen, that one piece is going to ruin the whole puzzle. Just take that one out. Not because you hate him you love him. You see your son writing the wrong way and say, no, no, honey. It's the wrong way. You want to go that way. 
You see your neighbor doing something wrong, building something wrong. You say, hey, neighbor, that one thing over there, it's, it's going to be in your way after you finish. You just don't see it now, but I have experience. By the time you finish, it's going to ruin the whole thing and have to destroy the whole thing. Oh, why'd you say it? Because I love you. Not because I hate you. But David Melech, David Melech warned us about it. And he said in Tehilim 118, They encircle me. They also surround me in the name of Hashem. I cut them down. They encircle me like bees. But they are extinguished as fire the thorns in the name of Hashem. I cut them down. The Vina Melech is telling us several things in one of the Chidushim we had, Baruch Hashem. It's not the Dvorim, it's not the bees that are obvious that hurt the most. It's not the Esavs of the world that try to debate me about Christianity that I care about. It's the so-called Tzadikim, the ones that think that Tzadikim, they come to me and, oh, I'm in the name of Hashem. In the name of Hashem, I'm here to rebuke you. I'm here to tell you you're doing wrong. I said, okay, no problem. You think I'm wrong? No problem. But how come all the Mechalele Shabbat in your community, you don't rebuke them? How come all the women that are walking in your shul half naked, you don't say a word to them? How come all the people that are intermarried, you welcome them into your shul? Why? Let's say my strategy is wrong. Let's say. Fine, I'll take it. What about yours? In the name of Hashem they come. And how they come, David Melch says, they come like bees. They think they're doing a mitzvah. But he says, we fight them in the name of Hashem. And all of these fakers will be destroyed eventually. We don't want bad for anyone. We want everyone to do tshuva. But before you go in, in the way of someone that's trying to sacrifice their life to help people do tshuva, ask yourself a question. All those people you know, all those tzaddikim, all of those books that are on your shelves that you haven't read, they agree with you? Or is it just like three verses in some parasha that you mistranslated? Those books, those gemara, the Zohar, the Mishnah, all of those books, all of those tzaddikim that you say you know, they're going to vouch for you, they're going to sign a check for 85 million, or when you come, say, hey, I rebuked the guy that left a life of millions to work for free to help Am Yisrael do tshuva. I rebuked him, so he stopped. So he's not doing it anymore. He gave up, he retired, he went back to Wall Street. They're going to vouch for you in Olam Abba. They're going to come to you in Olam Abba. Yeah, yeah, he did right. He did right. I'll vouch for him. They wrote the check. They wrote it. Oh, they said, no, I don't know. I wouldn't even mess with that guy. I blessed him. That was an accident. I didn't know it was him. It was before he did this craziness. I wouldn't have blessed him if I knew. Oh, it wasn't like that. I, I wasn't sure. All of a sudden, no one knows. This is important to know. It's important to know because unfortunately, the Gogu Magog that we've been talking about for the last three years of doing lectures... It starts at home. 
It starts inside. The Erev Rav is inside. The Gogumagog is inside. Satan is inside. It's all inside. What are we doing today to help Am Yisrael do tshuva? So Rabbi Akiva in Mishnah Avot, Gimel Yud Zayin, that we're up to, 3.17, he says the following. Rabbi Akiva, Shok Omer, Shok Vekalut Rosh, Margilin, Eta Adam Leherva. Masoret Siyag La Torah, Maasrot Siyag La Osher, Nedarim Siyag La Prishut, Siyag La Chokma Shtika. Rabbi Akiva, says mockery and levity accustom a man to immorality, sex crimes. The transmitted oral Torah is a protective fence around the Torah. The tithes, the ma'aser, is a protective fence for wealth. Vows are a protective fence for abstinence and a protective fence for wisdom silence. So first, as a Der Chachamim, first we find out who is this Rabbi Akiva? Most people that live on this planet and have heard of something called Torah have heard of who, or the name Rabbi Akiva. But as, as it's the way of our rabbis, before we commit to learning his Torah, we need to learn about him a little bit. Who is this Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva was a third generation Tana, but he's one of the most, if not the most, famous sages in history. By far the most famous Baal Tshuva in history. He's also the son of Yosef, the convert. His father's name was Yosef in Gemara Masechet, Brachot 27. It talks about how his beginning of his life started, and by life I don't mean the way he was born, but rather life of Torah. He was a 40-year-old divorced with a child, and illiterate. And his job was to clean horses for a very, very rich and wealthy person, and also righteous, named Kalba Savua. And Kalba Savua's daughter, Rachel, saw that this Akiva, wasn't Rabbi Akiva yet, it was Akiva only. This Akiva has good midot, he treats the animals well. It's good character traits. And she said, if I marry you, you promise that you'll spend the rest of your life learning Torah and becoming a Talmud Chacham. She didn't say, if I marry you, will you give me money? Because she already had money. Her father was one of the three richest people in the land. She didn't say, if you marry me, if I marry you, will you take me to a vacation or a honeymoon? She said, if I marry you, will you commit your life to Torah? Because the midot, the character traits that are hard to get, you already have a good foundation without Torah. I can only imagine what you can be with Torah. 
Rabbi Akiva, the son of a convert, tells us later in the Gemara, in Masechet Psachim, page 49b, that before Rachel came into the picture, he actually hated Tamidei Chachamim. He hated them to such an extent that when he would see them, he would want to bite them like a donkey bites a person. So his Talmidim, his students said, you mean like a dog bites people, right? He goes, no, no, like a donkey. Because when a dog bites, he only bites the flesh. When a donkey bites, he bites, breaks the bone. I hated them that much that I wanted to destroy them. So Akiva teaches us later on, after he became Rabbi Akiva, that Akiva hated Rabbi Akiva. Akiva hated Rabbi Akiva. Why did Akiva hate Rabbi Akiva? Because just like Esav Sonet Yaakov, his alakha, is part of the instilled nature of Esav, in the same Gemara in Maseret Psachim, page 49b, it says, Ama Aretz, Sonim Talmidei Chachamim. Yoter mi Esav Sonet Yaakov. The ignorance the ones who don't know Torah hate the Talmidei Chachamim even more than Esav Sonet Yaakov and their wives even worse. The one who doesn't know anything, he looks at the one that knows, he sees, what does he know that I don't know? He knows some books in Torah on his shelf. I have other books. He has this Gemara thing, this Talmud thing, the Zohar thing, the Schumas thing, okay, I got history, I got philosophy, I got Aristotle, I got Plato, I got this one, I got that one, I got the same books. He's got a library, I got a library. What's the difference? How is it that his library makes him content and happy when he has nothing? And my library in my mansion makes me more miserable. How could it be? How could it be that he's happy just opening a book and I can't wait to finish the book because I can't wait to buy another? Because this one just didn't do it for me. How could it be that he doesn't care about money? And as soon as someone comes for tzedakah, he just takes out whatever's in his pocket and gives it just to go back to his book. And me, when someone comes, I detest the fact that they came to me. Go work, I tell them. I worked for my money. You go work for money. Why are you coming to me? Why is he so generous when he doesn't have much and I hate to give and I have everything? How could it be? He read books. I read books. How could it be? So Rabbi Akiva here tells us that the books, although it's just as much in quantity, what's in them is what makes Akiva into Rabbi Akiva. What's in them is what makes the person generous, loving, willing to sacrifice, and truly wealthy. As Chazal teaches us, who is rich? The one that's happy with his share. Regardless of what the share is, whether the share is $5 or $5 billion. At the time Akiva met Rachel, he wasn't Rabbi Akiva. 
Instead, he was an illiterate 40-year-old man. When Kalba Savua found out that his daughter had secretly married this employee of his, he threw her out of the house. He told her that you're cut off from the will until you divorce him. She obviously did not because her mindset was in a different world. Her mindset was that she wanted to be a part of the life of a true Talmud Chacham that comes from nothing. In the Gemara in Maserik Tubot, page 62 and 63, it gives more and more details of the story. And over the next 12 years, Rabbi Akiva goes to test after test to eventually become Rabbi Akiva. But before he becomes Rabbi Akiva, he first has to learn the alphabet. Because unlike many people his age, he never went to school. He didn't know the alphabet. There's no kindergarten for 40-year-olds. If Rabbi Akiva showed up to yeshiva today, they would reject him. They say, you're too old. Go back to cleaning horses. Luckily, the yeshiva system was a little different back then. So he went to kindergarten to learn the Aleph Bet, but he felt embarrassed and he ran back home and he said to his wife, Rachel, I'm sorry, I can't deliver my end of the bargain. I cannot do it. It's too embarrassing. She said, okay, no problem, so I have a second deal for you. Said, okay, what's the deal? She goes, you know the little donkey that we have? He goes, what? You mean the donkey that has a hole in his back? That donkey is good for nothing. He goes, yeah, yeah. Just do me a favor. I just want you to do me one favor. Take the donkey, fill up that hole that he has on his back with some, you know, some ground, some earth. And plant a seed in it. Plant a little flower on it. Just walk him in the market and, you know, water the, water the plant. Rabbi Akiva looks at his wife goes, this is what you want me to do? It's either that you go back to kindergarten. He goes, oh, I'm going back with the, with the donkey. No problem. And he walks around town with this strange donkey, this deformed donkey. Everyone looks at him and is like, what's wrong with this guy? Why are you watering the donkey? And they see there's a plant in the donkey. After a day, he finishes. You do it? Yes, no problem. Second day, he finishes. Come home? Yeah, you did it, no problem. After a week of doing this, his genius Sadika wife says to him, so, how was work today? He says, yeah, I'm watering the donkey. He goes, okay, so is everyone still laughing at you? He goes, no, not really, actually, don't even pay attention to me. He goes, why not? He goes, no, after the first day, it looked, it looked to me strange. The second day, a little less people looked at me strange. By the third day, no one cared. Now a week, I'm just like everybody else. She says, the same thing will be with kindergarten. Go learn the Aleph Bet. Rabbi Akiva listened to his wise wife and he went to learn the Aleph Bet. And after learning the Aleph Bet, he dedicated the next 12 years away, away from his wife, away from the world. He went to Yeshiva and did not come back. No vacation, no 4th of July. 12 years away from home. Today we leave 12 minutes. Are you coming? Are you coming? It's shoot to us still. Are you coming? Are you coming? It's uh, work. Are you coming? I'm still at the store. Are you coming? It's been 13 minutes. 
Every day. Today we have a problem getting 13 minutes free. Everyone. She let her husband go for 12 years. Why? I want the finished product. I want Talmit Chacham. 12 years later, he comes back only to overhear a conversation where the wicked neighbor decides to cross the line. He tells her, how long are you going to be a widow of a living man? Meaning, he's alive, but he's never with you. She goes, I'm going and I'm waiting for the finished product. And if he would be here, and he would know what I really wanted, I would want him to go for another 12 years. Rabbi Akiva had so much honor and respect for his wife that he did not even waste a moment and he turned around without even saying hello and went back. He went back to the yeshiva for another 12 years. From here, of Chaim Shmuelovitz, tells us, here we learn that both Rabbi Akiva and his wife knew the significance of consecutive study. And they knew that 12 plus 12 does not equal 24 in Torah world. When I tell you guys that sometimes some people call me and they tell me they have a lot of serious, serious problems, or sometimes they tell me they want to be Tamidei Chachamim. And they ask me, what's the secret? And there's a secret. What's the secret? Now obviously there's many things to do. But one of the things that I tell them that I learned from my Rav is to learn with Ta'ani Dibu. Learn without talking. Anything other than Torah. Of course when you learn Torah you should spend as much time as possible you know when you're learning from the books to speak it out loud. Say the words that you're reading out loud. It's better for your memory. It's better for your study. But when you actually learn without talking about anything mundane, it's a different type of study. Many people go to yeshiva, go to schools, go hang out at the Beknesset, and they learn, but at the same time, they're chit-chatting. Oh, what did Rabbi Akiva say? Yeah, what did that, what's the score? What's the score now? Oh, it's 4-1. Oh, what did Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu? What's the score now? Oh, it's 5-1. Every few minutes, every 15, 20, 30 minutes, disruption. You want coffee? No. You want this? No. You want that? Every few minutes is an interruption. What's the score? What time it is? Is your mom coming to pick us up? Is your husband here yet? Did you check your phone? Did you check what's on the internet? You see what happened in the news? Every few minutes is a distraction. Something happens in the world that Satan is making sure you know about it. And if you are wise enough to shut off your phone, he's wise enough to send your friend to be your phone. Oh, did you see what was on Facebook? No, my phone is shut off. Oh, okay, you should check it out. Ah, Hashem Elchem, you start opening the phone, 25 minutes pass because you're on Facebook. What are you checking about? Is a new video about a cop helping the little ducks cross the road. And there's likes and dislikes, and maybe the, maybe the ducks are straight, maybe they're gay, maybe they're politically correct, maybe they uh, want to be politicians, maybe one of them is going to be the next president, maybe this guy gave tzedakah, 
the history of the ducks, what happened to the ducks. Oh, yo, yo, how many comments? You have one video, 50 million comments. What happened? 20, you have 30 minutes of study, 35 minutes of Facebook, 35 minutes of chit-chat. So Rabbi Akiva is telling you, 12 plus 12 in Torah is not 24. If you study consecutively, it's a different type of Torah. And Rachel knew it. When someone wants to get their studying to the next level, they have to learn with Ta'ani Dibu every day, not sometimes. Not because it's Asaray Emet the days before, between Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and uh, Yom Kippur. Not because Tisha Be'av, not because, right before Tisha Be'av, not because it's Elul, not because it's Pesach, not because it's, I don't know, uh, Shavuot, or any other excuse people give themselves to finally study. No, it's every day. Every day. Take two hours, study, without talking. No baseball, no basketball, no stock market, no honey, what do you want for dinner? Nothing. Study. Open the book, Study. You need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. Your wife asks you something and it has to be an uh, answer, mumble, like, mm, 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 and mm. three words, end of conversation, but don't say anything. Keep your mind on the Torah. Because Chazal taught us, you can lose your Torah as quickly as you blink your eye. Meaning that if you don't focus on your Torah, for even as little as the blink, time it takes to blink an eye, you can lose your entire Torah. Seven years of Torah, not just what you study today. Why? You didn't honor it. So first and foremost, for all of you men out there and some of you women that are actually studying and learning Torah, you study Torah with Tani Dibu, it's a different level of Torah. Shut off the phone, shut off the TV, shut off the world. And if your friend can't shut up, find a new friend. Find a new Chavuta. It's either learning or chit-chatting. You want to chit-chat? Just chit-chat. Go to the cafe, chit-chat. Why are you learning? For what? So Rabbi Akiva knew it. And the outcome was that after 24 years, he not only became Rabbi Akiva, but he became Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva that can revive the dead. Rabbi Akiva with 24,000 students, the biggest rabbi in history since Moshe Rabbeinu. 24,000 students where the least of them knew the entire Torah and was able to revive the dead. The least of them. The best of them, Yonatan ben Uziel, was to such a level that when he would study, there would be a fire above him. And if any bird flew above him, it would go on fire. So here we have 24,000 students the greatest minds that ever existed. All his students. So if they're his students, what is he? So this very same Rabbi Akiva came home with 24,000 students. No one knew that this is the same former Amaretz, former Ignoramis, former Akiva that was washing horses. No one knew. They said, the Gdola Do is coming. Who? Rabbi Akiva. No one put two and two together. Rachel knew. Rachel knew it's my Rabbi Akiva. But Rachel was homeless. Rachel was living and sleeping on hay. 
on hay with the horses. Rachel had to sell her hair so she could eat. That's the sacrifice Rachel made. And when she came and she saw this 24,000 students, just imagine, imagine 24 doleado all show up in town. Imagine. One tzaddik, or somebody says he's a tzaddik, shows up to town, half the city shows up. Imagine 24,000. 24,000 show up to the city, and Rachel knows it's my Rabbi Akiva. It's my Rabbi Akiva. And she goes, and she tries to go in, and the students say, hey, 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 lady. It's the Gdola Dol, relax. Wait, she's trying to get to the Rav. She's trying to get to Rabbi Akiva. It's our Rabbi Akiva, but they're like, there's this homeless lady. She's going to get close to a rabbi. Rabbi Akiva says, oh, let her in. Because my Torah and your Torah are all hers. Everything we know belongs to her. Why? Because the Torah teaches us that the one who enables another to do a mitzvah is bigger than the one that actually does the mitzvah. So the wives of Am Yisrael that send their husbands to go learn Torah, you have nothing to feel bad about. The wives that send their husbands to go do Zikwe Rabim, you have nothing to feel bad about. Your Lama is much bigger. Your reward is much bigger. When he calls you and he says, Honey, do you want me to come home? You say, Honey, why are you calling me? Keep learning Torah. Stay in Yeshiva. Stay in the Kolel. Why are you calling me? I'm only home because I'm waiting for this Olama Ba reward. What are you doing? Why are you interrupting? Why are you interrupting your study? So Rabbi Akiva says to his wife, If I only could, I would have an art artist create a Yerushalayim Shel Zav, a gold tiara with the skyline of Jerusalem. Why? Because she sold her hair so she could eat. He says, I want to replace it. Replace this hair with a crown full of diamonds and gold. This is what he told her when they had nothing. Eventually, Kalba Savua, her father, comes to this Gdola door and he says, Kvod Arav, 24 years ago, I made a vow. I threw out my daughter because she married this Amaaretz. She married this ignorant person. And I listen, I keep Torah and mitzvot. I know a little bit of Torah. I didn't want my, my daughter to marry some ignorant person. So I thought that to encourage her to leave him, I'll throw her out. This is not usually a shita that worked back then or today. So all of these parents that throw their kids out, unless you absolutely have no choice because they're simply destroying the house, usually try to get them closer rather than throwing them out. That's not usually a good solution. But we all have our own tests. And may Hashem have mercy on each one of us through our tests. Kaaba Savoy had his own test, and he didn't ra- realize that the reason why he threw his daughter out is sitting in front of him. He didn't know that Akiva was not Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva says to him, when your daughter married this Ama Aritz, 
if you knew that this Amaaretz would one day become a big rabbi. Not Gdolador, but a big rabbi. He had a keilah, Tamit Chacham. says, if I knew that this guy just became just Shomer Mitzvot, I wouldn't have a problem. Forget about Gdolador, rabbi. He goes, then don't worry, the vow you made 24 years ago is not a valid vow. It's not canceled. It never existed because you you made your vow based on things you had no idea of. And by the way, I'm your son-in-law. At that moment, Kalba Savua was astonished. And he had such value for Torah. And he says, half of mine is yours. And he gave Rabbi Akiva half of his wealth. And shortly after, Rabbi Akiva found two fortunes even bigger. And he actually became even richer than Kalba Savua. But one day, throughout this whole journey, he showed up at home to remind his wife that he never forgot. The minute he got money, he delivered on a promise and he gave her a crown that was one of a kind, of the skyline of Jerusalem, full of diamonds and jewels. So Rabban Gamliel's wife said to him, Honey, I want to have a present like that. We're rich. Rabban Gamliel is very wealthy. Can you buy me something like that? And Rabban Gamliel answered her wisely and he said, Would you be ready to sell your hair so that your husband could go learn Torah? Would you be ready to sell your ulama zeh for your husband to go teach Torah, learn Torah? Would you? Every Bati Israel has to ask herself this. What's more important to me? This world or the next one? Which one? If it's this one, there may not be a next one. The more you like this world, the less likely there will be a next world. This does not mean we have to suffer in this world. Not what we're saying. But the more connected to material world here, the more connected you are, the less care you have, naturally, about this next world. It's not an insult to anyone in particular. It's just a reality. In Rabbi Akiva, is one of the few that was able to teach us that you can benefit in this world and the next. But your main concern, your main focus, your main energy is always on the next. It's always on the next because the only thing that's in your hands is how your olama ba is going to look like. Your olama zeh is not in your hands. Your olama zeh, this world, that's just up to Hashem. Hashem wants to make you rich, I'll make you rich. Hashem wants to make you poor, I'll make you poor. Hashem wants to have, make sure that you have kids, you'll have kids. Hashem wants to give you a zivug, I'll give you a zivug. In Gemara Masechet Sotah, page 2, it says that the person gets the zivug like his ma'asim. He's righteous, he gets a woman that's modest. If he's wicked, he gets a prostitute. A woman that's not modest. Why? It says if you're, Rashi explains, if she's modest, then of course it's much more likely 
that she'll be righteous. So righteous with righteous. But if she's not modest, it's impossible for her to be righteous. So she's wicked and she's with the wicked guy. So now that we know that this Rabbi Akiva went to the cleaners with tests after tests, learning the Aleph Bet at the age of 40, learning without seeing his wife for 24 years, sacrifice after sacrifice with no promise of tomorrow, no promise of success, no promise of nothing. Only promise he had was the promise that he made to his wife that this is what he would do. And the promise that Hashem Barach told us in Parashat Vayetchanan, which is that he pays his lovers for thousands of generations. Only two promises. I do mitzvot, I follow Torah, I'm in good shape. Why? I both deliver on what my wife wants, so she has a nice, pretty olam and I make Hashem happy. Who's better than me? So now that we know this a little bit, just a little, about Rabbi Akiva, let's see what he says. We have a lot to learn from him. Someone that's able to have 24,000 students, if we had 24,000 pennies, we'd be proud of him. He had 24,000 students. So Rabbi Akiva, he says, there's a map. There's There's a few things you need to know of how to establish your your relationship with Hashem Barach. And first and foremost, you have to understand that the war, it never started. The Gog Magog war, it never started. The war with Esav, it never started. The war with the Erev Rav, it never started. It's always been. From the minute the world was created, it's always been. In the end of days, before the Mashiach comes, we will have another physical war around us. Missiles, atomic bombs, Hashem Yerachem, and all types of horrible, awful things that only God can protect us from. But why will God protect you if you didn't even acknowledge Him for 30, 40, 50 years? Why? Why would God acknowledge you when instead of going to Shuret Torah, you went to clubs? When instead of going and doing tshuva, you stayed with the non-Jew, non-Jewish. Instead of getting closer to Hashem Barach, you got closer to the mall. Why? Why is He going to save you? So Abiy Akiva is telling you, listen, I love you. I love you. So I'm going to tell you some things that are hard to hear. Not because he hates us. Rabbi Akiva was one big ball of love. All of the sages. Full of love. People always connect Rabbi Nachman from Breslev with love. Because some of his students, or at least they call themselves his students, like to break dance in the middle of the street. 
The reality is that if Rabbi Nachman from Breslev was still around, he'd see these breakdances in the middle of the street, he'd probably burn them from the fire of Kedusha that he has. That's not Torah. Many people say that Lubavitch Rebbe, Zechat Tzadik Mibracha, was full of love. No doubt about it. But if he saw some of his students that tell their congregants to drive on Shabbat to Beknesset so they have a minyan, he'd also burn them with his, with his Kedusha. It's not Chabad. It's fake Chabad. It's fake Breslev. Many of the people that call themselves part of one group or another, like we talked about last week, they're not really it. Many of the people that call themselves Orthodox Jews, they're not. Today I got a very, very sad and disturbing letter from a student of mine. And she says to me, why is it so hard for women of color and men of color Black women, black men, Spanish women, Spanish men, and so on, to join a simple congregation. Is it not a surprise that many go to reform and conservative? They're much more accepting. Just to me, I go to a Keilah, Orthodox, Sephardic, Ashkenazi, whatever it was, and all of a sudden, people immediately question my Judaism. They question my conversion. They question my beliefs. But nobody else that comes there, they question. Another guy tells me a similar story. He says, yeah, I went to the Minyan. I was born Jewish. It's just that my parents are black. Because their parents were converts and so on and so forth. But I'm already second generation Jew. But when I go to some Minyan somewhere... They asked me if I'm Jewish, but they didn't ask the other guys if they were Jewish. And then I heard one guy says, no, I don't want to pray with him. So she asks me this horrible, awful question. How is this Judaism? What's the answer? It's not. It's not Judaism. It has nothing to do with Judaism. It has to do with Rishayim. They sound like Jews. But in reality, they are Esav. A Jew that knows Torah, but has no Midot, Gemara says, a dead animal in the street is better than him. A Jew that has an ounce of racism in his blood, has to question his Judaism. The question is, Yirat Shemaim. A Jew that looks at any other Jew as anything different than him, regardless of his eyes, his skin color, his past, whether he's a convert or a Baal Tshuva or a Frum from birth. If he's a Jew, he's a Jew. You look at him different, you're a Rasha. Who said? Torah. At one time, a student tells me a story where she went to the mikveh and she said, they told me I'm not welcome in this mikveh. And I told her, why are you not welcome in the mikveh? You're a woman, you're married. What's the problem? 
you fit the description of what's required for a mikveh. Married Jewish woman, mikveh. What's the problem? She says he doesn't accept converts. I said, oh, he's not Jewish. We don't accept him either. These people are not Judaism. These are the Rashaim of the world. This is Evrav. This is Amalek. This is Esav. This is the worst people on earth. You distance yourself from them. You stay away from them. You're not even allowed six feet next to them. Them, atomic bomb is better. Because at least an atomic bomb kills bodies. They kill souls, these people. You stay away from them. It's not Judaism. It has nothing to do with Judaism. Racism has nothing to do with Judaism. You must love another Jew. Even more so if he's a convert. Even more so if she's a convert. There's no such thing as we don't accept converts. And the few keilot remaining in the world that say openly, we don't accept converts, they have a serious problem. And I know better than most how much of that problem is because most of the keilah members that are intermarried come to me. Oh, my wife wants to convert. I'm like, yeah, but your keilah doesn't accept converts. He goes, I don't care about the keilah. I care about my wife. I care about my ulama ba. I just finally, I saw your lecture. I realized ulama ba is real. Hashem is real. Torah is real. I have to, I have to do something about it. My wife wants the same thing. She said it's real. She wants to change. She wants to do this. She wants to do that. We have to convert. We have to change. I have to do tshuva. I have to do everything. I said, okay, no problem. Relax. What's the problem? He goes, well, I don't know. You're telling me that I can't do because of my keilah? I said, no, no. I'm just saying that you can't go to that shul. He goes, yeah, but they accepted for me to come while I was intermarried. I said, yes, they'll accept you when you're intermarried, but they're not going to accept you when you're married appropriately to a convert. If you have no Allah they'll accept you. If you have Allah they don't accept you. You understand? This is the stupidity of today. This is, this is the foolishness of what we got to. The guy that's intermarried to a Goya, come to Minyan, we need you. The guy that's married to a Jew that converted, but a Jew is probably more righteous than anybody else in this room. No, 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 we don't accept. Why don't you accept? Because he's a convert. Yeah, but she's more righteous than you. She knows more Torah than you too. What's the problem? No, no, it's a takana. It's a takana. It's a, it's a, we changed something. A rabbi said, okay, the takana, fine. She's a Jew. The takana was for someone not to convert. She already converted. It's finished. To encourage conversion within your community, no problem. But she's a Jew already. She's a Jew already. You have to love her. The Torah says you have to love her. Your takana is not above the Torah. So the reality of it is that people smear Judaism with their garbage. They're racist sometimes. They're prejudiced sometimes. But I want to remind everyone that's not Judaism. The only thing that makes Judaism Judaism is the Torah. If what is being done conforms with the Torah, it's Judaism. If it's against the Torah, it's not Judaism. It's people. People are people. Judaism does not depend on the Jews. Judaism depends on the Torah. Sometimes the Jews are the best representation of the Torah, and therefore, excuse me, and therefore they're the best representation of Judaism. 
But sometimes no. Sometimes no. The Prophet Yechezkel told us a little bit about this. And after seeing all that's happened, he says it's time for the end of days. I'm sorry, the Prophet Ezra. It's time for the end of days. It's time for the salvation. It's time for good. Time to do tshuva. In chapter 9 of Ezra, he says the following. When these matters were concluded, after all that's transpired, the officers approached me saying, the people of Israel, the Kohanim, the Levites, have not kept themselves apart from the people of the lands, doing like the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptian and the Amorites. We're making not only the sins of one nation, we're making the sins of all of them. Not just America, but America, Africa, Europe, China. We took everybody. We make sins like that, we're going to do it here. He does idol worship, we'll put the Buddha in our, in our living room. He does a cross, we'll put a Christmas tree in the house. We'll call it Hanukkah tree. They have homosexuals, we'll have a parade for them. All this craziness, it says all of the nations, the worst of all the nations, they're doing all of it. For they have taken their daughters in marriage for themselves and for their sons. And the sacred offspring of Israel have intermingled with the people of the land. And the hand of the officers and the chiefs has been foremost in this transgression. He says not only is Am Yisrael is making the sins of all the nations, not just them, all of them, since the time of Ezra. But who's leading them? Who is the biggest sinners? Who is telling them, go, ready, go? Who? He says, the rabbis, the leaders, they're telling them, ready, go. They're the biggest sinners. They're also intermarried. They're also going with people they're not supposed to. They're also going to the parades. And Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak I tore my hair from my head and my beard and I sat down in silence. Ezra sat Shiva on the entire nation. He says, this, if Hashem doesn't destroy us now, what will be left? Baruch Hashem, Hashem has a lot of mercy for us. And He continued giving us more and more opportunities. The problem is that we're making the same problems now. But we don't have Ezra. We don't have a prophet. And anyone that tries to tell people things that the prophet said, they say, no, 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 it's too much. It's too much. Don't, don't tell people the truth. Don't, don't. It's too much. You hate them. I'm like, why I hate them? Why I hate them? You hate them. Why? Tell them to keep Shabbat. Yeah, you hate them. Why? Tell them to keep kosher. Yeah, you hate. That's hate. It's hate speech. What? To tell them to have a lama ba? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's hate speech. Keep them, love them as they are. Yeah, but if I love them as they are, they go to Gehenom. If I love them as they are, they're going to hate me. If your son was about to hit by a train, 
You tell them to get away? Tell them move? Or you tell them, no, no, I love you, so I'm not going to tell you what to do. With love like that, who needs enemies? Who needs these enemies? We have them home. So Rabbi Akiva says, first and foremost, know what to stay away from. First and foremost, mockery and levity accustom a man to immorality, sex crimes, promiscuity. There's a klal gadol b'torah, en apotropus l'arayot. There is no guardian for sex crimes. Sex crimes is something everyone, everyone can fail to. Everyone. Who said this? Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said, how do you say it? How do you say it? He used to make fun of it. He's not so worried about erva. We worried about sex crimes. Got 24,000 students. Kedusha, Tara. According to Chazal, he reached a higher level of Kedusha than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu saw in prophecy the future in Mount Sinai. He reached the 49th level of Kedusha. He says, Hashem, who's that? He says, that's Rabbi Akiva. And Moshe Rabbeinu sat in the class of Rabbi Akiva. And he sees that Rabbi Akiva is teaching Alachot, teaching the laws of the Torah. How? From the crowns on each one of the holy letters. The crowns. We don't even know how to write a Hebrew letter the right way. He was teaching Alachot, secrets. Secrets from the little tiny little, little dot on top of each letter. That looks like a crown. Teaching laws from it. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem, I don't understand what he's talking about. He started feeling bad about himself. Until Rabbi Akiva finished the shiur and he says, everything we just learned is from Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu calmed down. But he says to Hashem, if you have somebody like him a thousand years after me, why are you giving me the Torah? Moshe Rabbeinu said, why you give me Torah? Give it to, give it to Rabbi Akiva. Hashem says, be quiet. Be quiet. I give you the Torah. Certain things we know, certain things we don't know. Certain things are secrets of him. Certain secrets are for him. Like it says in Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 27. Secrets are his. Why he decided to give it to Anna Moshe Rabbeinu, not Rabbi Akiva? Tells Moshe Rabbeinu, that's for me to know. Why was Rabbi Akiva's ending, his end of his life, so horrible, so horrific? The Reshaim, the Romans took his body and started peeling it like you peel an apple. We'll learn more about that Bezat Hashem right before Tisha B'Av. Something we need to know. We need to know what it means, Eisava hates Yaakov. Today is not the time. But Moshe Rabbeinu says, that's Torah, v'des that's, that's the Torah, and that's its reward. What happened? Why are you giving such a horrible ending? Hashem says, be quiet. Certain questions he'll answer, certain questions he won't answer. The truth is that every single mitzvah, we don't know the real reason of why we're doing it. 
There's not a single mitzvah. We know the real reason of why Hashem wants us to keep it. Not Shabbat, not Tarat Mishpacha, nothing. There's Te'amim. There's, there's little flavors, little things that we know that are benefits from them. Little things that we know that are good about them. But it's not the real reason. We know that if someone doesn't keep Shabbat, we know there's a list of punishments. We know somebody keeps Shabbat in general, they're closer to Hashem, they have a better life, they have better closeness with their family, there's countless benefits. It's better for Parnassah, it's better for a lot of things. We know if somebody keeps Tarat Mishpacha, it's better for marriage, there's much more attraction between the husband and the wife. We know there's benefits. But just like the Paraduma we learned about last week, that's all of the mitzvot. All of the mitzvot, we don't really know the real reason. We know ta'amim. We know a little bit of each one about some things about them. But the real reason, we don't know. Hashem knows. He says, I'll give you some taste on most of the mitzvot. I'll give you a little bit of a taste of why I like it. A little bit. Not the whole thing. Not the real reason. A little bit, I'll give you, this one is good for this. This one is good for that. This one is this. This one's that. But that's benefits. It's not the real reason. Real reason, I said so. That's the real reason. So Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Hashem Barach and he says, why are you giving me the Torah? Moshe Rabbeinu. The prophet of all prophets. So this Rabbi Akiva, he used to make fun of anyone that's worried about failing for sex crimes. How do you fail for sex crimes? Well, you have an empty mind. You don't know Hashem is watching. What's wrong with you? Until the Satan comes to him as a woman. The Satan himself. Kamara says Satan himself came to Rabbi Akiva as the most beautiful woman that ever existed. And Rabbi Akiva almost made a sin with her. Until the Satan turned around and says, I'm the Satan. And you are lucky. That in Shamaim they scream, be careful of Rabbi Akiva. Because his Torah is holy. Everything he learned in his Torah is changing the world. Careful of his Torah. Because if it wasn't for your Torah, I'd rip you apart right now. The only thing that protected you. But if Rabbi Akiva says, anyone can fail including me. It's easy to understand why the beginning of this Mishnah, he says, when there's mockery, there's levity, and ha ha ha, instead of a shiur Torah, they have a comedy session. You ever see one of those? People go to shiur Torah, finally you got them to shiur Torah, Mr. Rabbi gives them an hour and a half full of jokes, three minutes of Torah, mentions Moshe Rabbeinu. Even worse, the whole crowd is full of women. Be careful of rabbis that focus only on women. Now teaching women throughout history, it's always been allowed under certain circumstances. But a rabbi that focuses only on women, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. When I went to uh, Los Angeles, I did a shiur over there. I did one of a uh, big couple of big lectures over there about a year, year and a half ago. 
one of the places they did a lecture. It was relatively early. So after we finished, there was somebody else that came. I see this tall, long-bearded rabbi, his wife, or somebody. And I realized, no, it's not his wife, it's a student. But okay, they're kind of close, but it's interesting. And then I see there's a lot more students. But one thing that all of the students had in common, the reason why I thought it was the wife, is because a lot of the, one of the things that a lot of the students had in common is that they all wore tank tops. Now, are you a rabbi, and you have 15 young women, and you're allowing yourself to teach them anything, when in reality they're considered naked. In reality, they're considered naked. You're not allowed to say Kriyat Shema next to them. You're not allowed to say Shema Yisrael next to them. You know that? But he's got 15 women sitting on the couch over there. You know, I was waiting outside for somebody for a long time, so I happened to peek in. It was all glass. And see, they're all sitting, lounging on these couches. And he mentions the Zohar and the Kabbalah once in a sentence. What is Zohar? What Kabbalah? Kabbalah Stira you're going to get. You're going to get Stira. You're going to get slapped in the face for teaching anything. Teach them how to wear clothes. Teach yourself how to close your eyes. But they're all laughing and joking and ha 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 ha. Everybody's having a good time like it's a pub. Unfortunately, today, there's a lot of these. There's a lot of these. There's these rabbis that go to different communities and they get the women. Oh, let's get you and all your friends. 15, 20, 30, 40 women together. And the guy, yeah, yeah, I'm going to teach you Kabbalah. I'm going to teach you Zohar. I'm going to teach you all these mystical parts of Judaism. I'm going to teach you Zgulot. What about teaching them modesty? What about teaching them how to keep Shabbat? What about teaching them how to eat kosher? What about teaching them how to put clothes on? What about teaching them that the wig that's six feet long is not appropriate? What about teaching them that? They're too busy telling them jokes. Rabbi Akiva says all these jokes, eventually they lead to Gainum. All these jokes, all this cheerful ha-ha-ha behavior. You don't start watching your eyes as a rabbi. You don't start watching your eyes as a student. Eventually you're going to fail. It's only a matter of time. It's a ticking time bomb. It's a ticking time bomb. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week. Eventually it's going to happen. I found, I heard a story today from my Rav. Mamash, I tell you, if it wasn't for this year... I don't know. I don't know if I would make the day. I, oh, Mamash, it was Lamash. I almost lost my mind. I just, I just lost it. But oh, Hashem, Hashem had mercy on me. I didn't lose it completely. There is a so-called rabbi in Israel who focuses on teaching women. And supposedly he's very, very popular. I don't know who he is. I wasn't told the name. But this is coming from a reliable source. This is coming from one of the biggest dayanim in the world. 
not coming from some guy told some guy. This is coming from one of the biggest Dayanim in the world. He says, today, a woman came to me. A married woman came to me. And she says to me, I'm a religious woman, and I see, she's a religious woman, she covers her hair with the mitpachat, she looks relatively modest, no problem. She says, I'm a talmidah, I'm a student of so-and-so rabbi. So far, so good. And she says, you know, I go to the classes, it's all women, three, four, five hundred women, I don't know, it's a lot of women. It's a little easier to get women as uh, students than it is men. They have less of a yitzhara for, for Torah. So, filling up a room, three, four hundred women, if you focus on it, you'll succeed. Question is, what happens after? He says he's very funny, he's very helpful, he's very this, he's very that. He's very popular. So far, so good. There's no problem with being popular. He says, but you know, I started talking to him and I told him I'm having a lot of marriage problems. I'm having a lot of marriage problems. And uh, my husband is this and my husband is that. And he told me, you know what, I'm also having marriage problems. My wife is this and my wife is that. And you know, we, we became friends. We became friends after the lecture. We became friends. We became friends. We became friends. And she came to the one of the biggest Dayanim in the world. She asked him, Right now he's in the process of leaving his wife and I'm in the process of leaving my husband. So we can be together. Is this okay? This is Choban Bet Amikdash. This is Choban Bet Amikdash. There's actually a story in the Gemara. Of this exact story. Happening right before Hashem decided, this it, that's it, that's it, finished. I'm destroying the Bet Mikdash. This exact story happened. Exact story happened. A guy sees another rabbi's wife. And he tells the guy, listen, I don't think your wife is treating you right. I think you should divorce her. The guy listens to his rabbi. Just like this husband is listening to this rabbi and sending his wife to this rabbi. Little does he know that the rabbi is eventually going to marry his wife. Well, that's the plan. Unless Hashem kills both of them. And this is exactly what happened. The husband leaves the wife And eventually, because due to problems with money, he ended up borrowing money from this guy, this rabbi that told him to, this uh, guy that told him to uh, leave his wife, this rabbi. And the rabbi says, listen, since you can't pay me back, why don't you work for me? Be my servant. So he comes and he becomes his servant and he just comes to his house to serve him and he sees that this rabbi, this rabbi, is sitting next to his new wife, drinking coffee. And he's the one serving the coffee. At that very moment, the Gemara says, Hashem decided, that's it, I'm destroying it. I'm destroying the whole thing. 
And if it wasn't for Noah, if it wasn't for Noah, it destroyed the entire world. This exact same thing is happening right now in Jerusalem. Same thing. Same thing is happening right now. You understand what's happening in the world today? You understand what's happening when you don't have Yilat Shemayim? You don't have fear of the Almighty. You don't think about what does Hashem think of me befriending one of my students, a woman that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to another. Do you understand what happens when there's no Yilat Shemayim? Do you understand now? Do you understand why Choban Bet HaMikdash happened? You don't need Tisha B'Av to learn this. This is happening. The Gogu Magog is inside you. Just depends when you're going to let it out. Rabbi Akiva says, be careful of these jokes. Be careful of this funny rabbi that makes the women laugh. Be careful. Want to make a joke once in a while? No problem. Good. You're livening people up. There's even a Gemara about it. Start a shiur with a joke. But it says start a shiur with a joke. Not a shiur of jokes. Start a shiur with a joke. Not a shiur of jokes. You understand? Mila de bdichuta. One word of joke. One. One word of joke. Not a shiur of jokes. So the rabbis that are trying to make the women laugh, because women are easier to make laugh. They're easier customers. They're easier customers with humor. You want to get to a woman's heart, make a laugh. Rabbi makes a woman laugh, she loves him. She'll give him a mortgage if she want, if she can. And a Rasha Rabbi will take advantage of it like it's happening right now. Be careful. Rabbi Akiva says, this is, this is Choban Bet HaMikdash. And Rabbi Akiva knew because Rabbi Akiva was alive at the time of Choban Bet HaMikdash. He saw it. A person needs to understand that when it comes to intimacy, this is what, a, what Hashem calls Kedusha. We learn a lot of the intricate details of Arayot, Intimacy. What's allowed, what's not allowed. From Hashem when He says to you, Kedushim, be holy, because I am holy. We learn from the Rambam in Sefer Kedusha. Sefer Kedusha in Mishneh Torah has the Ilchot Isurei Be'ah. Ilchot Isurei Be'ah is all about Intimacy. Chazal understood the Yetzirah of intimacy, the Yetzirah of sex crimes, Ba'arayot. It says no one is above it. You could be Kohen Gadol for a hundred years, you're not above it. You could be Rabbi Akiva, not above it. You could be Rabbi Meir Baranes, you're not above it. You could be Gdol Adol, whatever. Learn Torah 24 hours a day, you're not above it. Always, always protect yourself against sex crimes. That's why it's an art filah. Don't follow your heart, don't follow your eyes. Why? It starts with what's in, what you see. You let your eyes see modest women, eventually you're going to fall. You let your heart 
focus on what's happening out there in the world instead of the Kedusha that you're supposed to focus on, you're going to fall. You're going to fall. Chazal was so scared of falling, there's actually Allahot in the Torah that they describe us to see how far we are. The Rambam says in chapter 21, in the second Allahot, it's even forbidden to smell a woman's perfume that's not your wife. A woman that's not allowed to you, whether it be your sister, your mother, a married woman, you're not even allowed to smell her. Smell her, smell her perfume. The Gemara Maseret Brachot says, if a person looks at the small finger of a woman with the intent of deriving pleasure is considered as if he had looked at her genitalia. Now to us newbies, this sounds far-fetched. How could a small finger be equivalent to our private parts? The Rambam repeats it. He got it from the Gemara Masechet Brachot. It's because once you see a man the way he's created, once he sees, immediately gets to his heart. He starts working. It's like a factory. It's a factory of Yetzirah. Whatever he sees goes to the factory of Yetzirah. Yetzirah starts creating thoughts. Oh, the finger. Imagine what the hand looks like. Imagine what the arm. Imagine this, imagine that. By the end of the thought, which is six, six seven seconds max, he's already imagined her completely naked. This is, don't fool yourself, men or women. This is the mind of every man. Unless he became holy. And if he became holy, he never even looked at the finger. The Gemara says, if this man looked at this woman's hands, because she's giving him change. She's giving him money, she's giving him change. But he's not looking at our hands because of the change. He's getting pleasure out of looking at our hands. Our hands. We're not talking about the wig she has that's three feet long. We're not talking about the body. We're not talking, we're talking about the hands. He says if he looks at our hands and he gets pleasure out of looking at our hands, and she's a married woman, she doesn't belong to him, he must go to Gehenom. He must go to Gehenom. There's no way for him to avoid Gehenom even if he has mitzvot like Moshe Rabbeinu. It won't protect him from the Gehenom that he would get for looking at her hands. Why? She doesn't belong to him. She doesn't belong to him. For all you men out there that are new, In the Sephardic culture, very, very loving and warm people. Shkenaz is also warm in different ways. But Sephardis are known, especially Israelis or people from Morocco and different parts of the Middle East, are known as very warm people. So, they like to hug, kiss. When they see somebody, even if they saw them 20 minutes earlier, they see them, oh, it's, you know, hugs and kisses and all that stuff. We hear the Rambam in the 6th Alakha, in chapter 21, 6th Alakha, in Yisurei Be'ah, 
He says, when a man embraces or kisses any of the women that are forbidden to him, as Arayot, despite the fact that his heart does not disturb him concerning the matter, meaning it's his adult sister, so he's not attracted to her, it's his mother's sister, or she's too old, it is very shameful and forbidden in its foolish conduct. It's Maaseh Tipshim. Only a fool, only a fool kisses or hugs a woman that doesn't belong to him. Only a fool. There are leniencies when it comes to somebody's mother, but as far as his sister, if she's married, as far as his aunt, even if she's 90, only a fool. Why? Yitzhara factory doesn't stop working at 90 years old. It doesn't stop working because she's your aunt. Because she knows you since you were little. It doesn't work. It doesn't stop. It starts there, it gets farther. And this is something that every single person needs to read. It goes on and on. But it gives you guys an idea of the different fences around the fences that the sages put to protect us. That's why he says... This, before we talk about the fences, of whether defense to protect your wealth, defense to protect your Torah, defense to protect your wisdom, defense to protect your freedom. Before we talk about all the fences, let's first talk about something worse than all of them. First and foremost, understand, none of the things are going to succeed if you keep failing for sex crimes. You keep hugging every one of your old classmates, that doesn't belong to you, that's not your wife, that's not your husband, because you want to be friendly. Everybody wants to, no, he's just my friend. I know him since he was six. Okay, he's 36. And he's married with kids, and so are you. When he was six, you could hug him. Now he's 36, you can't. You can't. Why? Because his mind doesn't work like you. You're an innocent woman. You think purely. You think, you know, he's so nice. He's thinking a different nice. That's the mind of a man. It just is. This is why the man needs to learn much more than a woman does. There's much more to clean up. So after this, somebody starts understanding the significance of the ultimate protection, protecting their bleat, protecting their intimacy, protecting their body, protecting their kedusha. Now you have a chance of being holy. Now you have a chance of being holy. You can't protect your intimate relationship. You have no chance. Why? Hashem put a lot, of, a lot of the things, a lot of the reward, a lot of the shefa there. So now, for all of the fools that like to make fun of different things on the internet, oh look, he's talking about wasting seed again. 
Oh, look, he's doing this. Oh, look, he's doing that. This is the worst thing in the world to make fun of. Why? Because it's outright a war against Hashem. The fact that most American or, or, or English-speaking rabbis don't talk about wasting seed, don't talk about these types of things, is unfortunate. But it's a very significant part of the Torah. Why? Because the beginning of being holy is connecting to Hashem, which is Yirat Shamaim, but there's making yourself holy. Hashem says, be holy because I am holy. Rebbe, Rabbi Yudan Asiu, put together the Mishnah. He was called Rebbe Akadosh. Rebbe the Holy. Why Rebbe the Holy? Because his entire life, he never even touched or looked beyond his stomach. He never looked at the bottom part of his body. Looked, forget touch. Never touched, never looked at it. Why? He says it's not necessary. It's not necessary. I go, I'm too scared of sinning. Too scared of sinning if I only look at it, let alone touch it. He understood that the sages were so worried about it, they didn't just put it there for no reason. Hashem didn't mention it so much for no reason. When you're with your wife, there's a time to, for joy, enjoy a time. It's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be joy. It's supposed to be amazing. But there's a time and a place. As a Jew, you're also not allowed to have intimacy anywhere. A lot of people, they think that they're like dogs. You just be intimate everywhere, in the car, in the movie theater, in this one, the theater, in the plane. They make, you know, in the, in the secular world, it's like their people are proud about stuff like that. They give names to it, all this. This is animals. This is not, this is not human behavior. Animals, they do things everywhere. Why? Because they're animals. Humans are not supposed to do that. So if we start acting like animals... Don't be surprised if Hashem judges us like the animals. Animals have no share of the world to come. Hashem and Hashem. Understand? You're the dog that you like that's cute and everything, he doesn't, he doesn't go to Olamba, even though he's cute and everything. He doesn't have Olamba. So that's the first thing. Next thing. Protection to your Torah is the oral Torah. Protection to the five books of Moses, what Hashem Itbarach said from his own mouth, is the oral Torah. You know, the funny thing is about the people that hate Orthodox Judaism, whether it be the Reform or the homosexuals, or the conservatives, or the messianics, or the outright Christians, they all have, or the Karaites, if they still exist, Bechlal. they all have a common hate. They all hate the oral Torah. All of them. They say we believe in the written Torah, but the oral Torah is rabbis. We don't, we don't follow it. The funny thing is, is that we don't know how to do any mitzvot without the instructions of the oral Torah. We don't know how. It says, keep Shabbat. What do you do? You keep it in a cage? You keep it in a closet? What do you keep? Where do you keep it? How do you keep Shabbat? It says, late feeling. 
if you follow the literal, then you put feeling over here, between your eyes. But according to Allah, you have to put it over here. And scientists confirm that when it says between your eyes, it literally is between your eyes. Where? Because the actual eyes are over here. I saw a picture recently of one of these messianic idiots who did not like the Oral Torah, but he still wants to lay tefillin. He still wants to lay tefillin. So he made tefillin by himself. He didn't follow. There's over a thousand alachot for tefillin. A thousand alachot for tefillin. Not uh, one, two, three, you got a piece of leather. It takes a long time to make them, a lot of effort, a lot of alachot. Kosher tefillin, you're not going to get for a couple hundred bucks. It's going to take some money. But it's a lifetime investment. It's your direct line with Hashem Barach. People want to spend $100,000 on the car, but when it comes to tefillin, they want to get bar mitzvah tefillin for 250 bucks. Yeah, but you have a $100,000 car. Spend $1,000, $2,000 on tefillin. The car, you give it back in a couple of years, or it's worthless anyway in a couple of years. It goes down in value the minute you, you lost 30% of the value the minute you left the car lot. You bought it for 100000 by the time you left the car lot, it's worth sixty-five. You lost 35000 just leaving the car lot before you even completed a mile. So instead of just losing 35000 just spend 1000 2000 on a nice, decent, kosher parrot tefillin. Not the bar mitzvah tefillin for the kid who doesn't know Aleph Bet yet. Real tefillin costs a couple of dollars, but it's not your cost, not a hundred thousand. It costs thousand, two thousand dollars. No, it's too much, it's expensive, it's this, it's that. So this guy also said it's too expensive, it's this, it's that. I don't know him personally, I just got a picture of him. Of somebody that knows him. He took somebody took a picture of him wearing his talit, which he bought from a store, but wearing his tefillin. It's tefillin, for anyone who wants to see the picture, I'll show it to you after this. Your tefillin like this. They're this big. So you have this guy with tefillin this big on his head. Mamash, it's like the most ridiculous, ludicrous, biggest mockery of the Kedushah of tefillin history. Why? No, all Torah. He decided to follow. He said, there's a box. It goes on your head. I'll make a box. He took a carton. He put it on his head. You should put him inside the carton. Sell them in a deli, maybe, with the Coca-Cola. So, Masoret, Seagal Torah, Masoret, the Masoret is our history, our old Torah. That's everything. That's everything. No old Torah, no nothing. So all of these Christians and reforms and all of these different people that hate the oral Torah, the interesting part, you tell them you keep Shabbat, it says you in Torah. But no, it's, that's oral Torah, how to keep it. Okay, I'm like, oh, so what, what do you actually keep? What do you keep? They all keep the same mitzvah. Do you know the reform, the conservative, the messianic and the Christians and the Catholics all agree on one mitzvah. Who can guess which mitzvah that is? No. Huh? No, no, they're talking about Christians also. Christians don't celebrate uh, Hanukkah. Shabbat, they don't think some way. One guy says it's Friday, the other one Saturday, the other one Sunday. No, come on, you've been coming to my shul in for a long time already. What's the world? What's the, what's the God of this these fake people? Money. So what do they agree on? They all agree you have to give 10% of your money. 
They all agree on Maser. Everyone agrees you have to give money. You go to a church, if somebody doesn't give Maser, hey, hey, you're a sinner. What do you mean a sinner? The guy, the guy next to him that gave Maser just murdered six people for the Maser. No, no, it's Sadiq. He's righteous. He gave Maser to the church with the 50,000 people. Yeah, but he murdered six people. Yeah, but he did Shuva. How did he do Shuva? He said some guy died. Yeah, the six people he killed died. No, 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 somebody else also died. Just give the Maser, give the 10%. All of them agree you have to give money. That's what they all agree on. Why? Because it's all fake. It's all fake. It's all business. If it wasn't for Maser, there would be no churches. There would be no reform. There would be no conservative. There would be nothing. Why? Because none of them actually believe anything they say. They don't love God. They love money. That's why the only mitzvah they connect to is money. To connect to Torah, a person needs to understand what it means to be holy. In the Gemara, Moet Katan, it mentions, and also in a, um, a different one, I think it's Baba Mitzia, Baba Kama, Baba Kama, in Moet Katan 25a, and also in Baba Kama 17a, it talks about King Chizkiyahu. King Chizkiyahu was known as a very, very holy man. To such an extent that when they buried him, they buried him next to a Sefer Torah. They buried him with the Sefer Torah. They said, him and the Sefer Torah, same thing. Chizkiyahu. Sefer Torah, Sefer Torah is holy, Chizkiyahu is holy. Never again was this permitted. But with him, he's as good as the Sefer Torah, they said. Why? He put the sword into the ground, he says, whoever doesn't leave everything, he starts learning Torah full time, we have to deal with the sword. Hashem said, he's going to take care of Paranasa. So let him take care of it, I believe it. Hashem said, he's going to take care of the enemies. I'm going to take his word for it. Your only responsibility is to go learn Torah. And that's why in his generation, in his lifetime, even the six-year-old boys knew the entire Mishnah by heart. And the Mishnah of that time is much, much bigger than the Mishnah of our day. It's not just six parts. Drastically bigger. Some say it was as much as 700 parts, not six parts. So this Chizkiyahu was given tests. was given tests in his life to see just how far he got. In the Gemara, Masechet Sanhedrin, page 95, it says a Maaseh, it says an event that occurred. where Sancheriv decided that he wanted to destroy the world, meaning to put everything under his control. And there's a city called Jerusalem 
that he hasn't gone to yet. So let's get to it. But he heard a lot of things about this city. So he made sure to arrive to this city with his full army. Even though Jerusalem, anyone that's been there knows it's not exactly huge. Israel as a whole is not exactly huge. You look at uh, most, I think all states in America are bigger than the state of Israel. It's the size of New Jersey. So, the best case we can get to is being the same size of one state. The rest of the states were smaller. So, even more so with Jerusalem, one of the cities within within Israel. So Sanchariv came with his entire army. Now his entire army, we're not talking about his entire army is uh, five, six people. According to Chazal, where is this? Don't misquote the numbers. Here we go. According to Chazal, it was 260 ribo. 260 ribo is 2.6 million soldiers. That's how many soldiers he had. The 185,000 generals, each with their own legion. And the size of the army was 400 palsa. Each palsa is 4 kilometers, which is approximately 2.5 uh, mile. So the actual army occupied 984 miles. I mean, this is a huge, huge, massive amount of people, massive amount of weapons. Next to who? A bunch of Tamidei Chachamim. A bunch of people are learning Torah. Nobody has a spear. Nothing. They come to Chizkiyahu, says, you know, they just arrived, we see them from the coastline. They just arrived. The enemy has arrived. Chizkiyahu, Without a worry in the world, it's okay. He goes learns Torah. When he finishes learning, he says, "Okay, good night. I'm going to sleep." Wait, wait, hold on. There's 2.6 million people with blood coming down from their teeth because they're so excited about killing us tomorrow. Excited to kill us tomorrow. And their leader is worse than all of them. Sanchariv was a special type of Rasha. So Chizkiyahu says, Okay, good night. Hashem says, Learn Torah, I hope protect me. I did my, I did my part, I went to learn Torah. So I'm going to sleep now. This is Hashem's problem. Without a worry in the world, he goes to sleep only to wake up in the morning and find out that Hashem sent the Malach Gabriel to kill every single one of his soldiers. 
Malach Gavriel came and literally killed every single one of the soldiers in one swoop, without a battle, without a sword, without tanks, without a platoon of soldiers. Nothing. Simple, over, done. Who's left? Sancheriv and his two sons. So Sancheriv says, you know what? I think it's because we didn't give enough sacrifices to our false gods. He was an idol worshiper. So maybe I'm going to give you two as a sacrifice for my God. His two sons. He's telling his two sons, maybe I'm going to kill you two to give a sacrifice to my gods. So his two sons killed him. This same Chizkiyahu, Chazal says, it's not easy to get to that level of emunah, to go just to sleep after you learn some Torah, when you have two and a half million people, bigger than the army of China. You have two and a half million people sitting next door to you. It's not easy to get there, unless you're holy. Like, like right now in Israel. But unfortunately in Israel, many of them think that the missiles are going to help them. Well, people think that the missiles are going to help. People think gonna, missiles are going to help. Iron Dome and all these things are going to help them. Only Hashem can help. If they only understood that Hashem is the boss, we'd be in a better shape. So first and foremost, when someone is holy, they understand they have to protect their brit, they have to protect their intimacy, they have to make sure that they connect to the oral Torah. Next thing is, people always ask me about money. Rabbi Akiva gives you the answer. You want protection for Osher? You want a strategy to become rich? Masrot Osher. You want a protection for your wealth? Give Maser. Give myself. Now, logically, this does not make sense. Logically. If I make 100% and I give 10% to some rabbi, to some yeshiva, to some talmit chacham, to some organization that helps people do tshuva, to something, I minus 10% out of the 100, am I left with 90? 90 and 100 are not the same. 90 is less than 100. So Chazal here is to explain to us in the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, page 9, Hashem Barach told us we are not allowed to test him. Not allowed to test him except with one thing. What is it? Maaser. He writes in the Torah a couple of places. Maaser v'titashel. In the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, page 9, it quotes Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. Asel tithe, you, will tithe, you shall tithe. So Chazal says, what is, why is it mentioned in the word asel twice? It says, asel bishvil shetit asher. Tithe, so you can become wealthy. Hashem is repeating the same word as a hint to tell you there is actually a key. There is a pattern. There is a strategy. 
foolproof strategy not only to be rich, but a strategy to show you that I'm real. To show you that I still perform miracles, to show you that I'm still in control of everything, including what many people consider as their false god called money. He says, you want a lot of this money? Give tithe. Give 10%. But don't give it to Bertha the elephant in, uh, in Israel at the, uh, at, the, at the zoo of Noah. Don't give it to Save the Dolphin Foundation or to some Christian organization that strategizes how to recruit Jews away from Hashem. Give this ma'aser for my Torah. Give this ma'aser for my people that are fulfilling the Torah, to come back to the Torah. So it says, but doesn't it say that we shouldn't test Hashem? The Torah says, don't test me. And here, it quotes the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. There's an uh, actual uh, verse in the Torah that says, And test me now, through this, Hashem, Master of Legions, Hashem says to the Master of Legions, If I will not open for you the windows of the sky and pour out blessings to you without li- without limit. So Chazal, in a different Gemara, asks in Shabbat, in Masechet Shabbat, says, what does it mean, Ad Blidai? What does it mean, without limit? What does it mean he's going to give me without limit? He says, if you really, really follow the Maasel, you give Maasel through thick and thin, They'll give you so much reward, you'll say, die, die, enough, Hashem, enough, enough. You've given me too much. To that extent. So now, there was a group of people, a group of investors that went to uh, Steinman. And they all went broke on some big deal. And they all went to complain to Rav Steinman. And they said to him, Kvodarav, we all gave Maser. We all gave Maser, we all had money. He had a million, he had five million, he had ten million, he had this, he had that, that. We all gave Maser. We all went broke on this deal. Group of people, it wasn't like one or two people, group of people, big group of people went broke on some big deal. We all gave Maser. So Rav Steinman says, can anyone hear? Stand up and swear on their Olam Abba that they gave Maasel regardless of the situation like clockwork. Whether they made a hundred thousand a month or they made a thousand. Whether it was a lot or a little, they gave Maasel without thinking twice. One guy stood up. Group of people. From what I'm told, it's a few dozen people. It was a big ason. It was a big disaster. One guy stands up. One guy stands up. He says, Kvodarav, my whole life, I was a very big makpid on giving myself. 
when I only made $1,000 a month, even though it wasn't really enough to cover my bills, I knew that the real mitzvah of ma'asel is to give 10% of the gross. That's the real mitzvah. It's not 10% of the net. Only today do we teach to give 10% of the net. Because the generation is so weak that if we didn't give them the 10% of the net, they wouldn't give anything at all. And even 10% of the net they don't give. The reality of ma'asel is 10% of the gross. You make 4000 this month, $400 is the ma'asel. After taxes. You make 4000 after taxes, $400 goes to ma'asel. Not $4,000 minus your rent, minus your car, minus your uh, groceries, minus your this and minus your that, and you have $400 savings out of it, and out of the $400 you get 40 bucks. No, my friends. Real ma'asel is off the gross. That's real ma'asel. So someone asked Rabbi Vadya, Zechet Tzadik Livachai, and I said to him, for the Rav, shouldn't we give it off of the net, tell people off of the net? He says, if you tell people to give it off of the net, no one would give ma'asel. He goes, no, 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 for the Rav, off the net is lower. People always think that Tzadikim are fools. They question again. No, no, for the Rav, the ma'asel of the net is lower, because if it's 4,000 gross, then 10% of 4,000 is $400. But if it's four, if it's net out of the four thousand, there's really only five hundred dollars left. After he paid the rent and the car and the gas and the groceries and the in this one and then that one, there's five hundred dollars left. So to give fifty dollars out of five hundred that's left, it's easier than giving four hundred kvodarav. So it's easier. He goes, no one's going to give ma'aser then. <laughs> they ask him why kvodarav. He goes, because in this generation, everyone's living above their means. No one has anything left. No one has the $500 left. So if you tell them it's off the net, everyone's real. What they have left is zero or negative. They all live on credit. So there's no ma'asel. And therefore none of them will be rich. None of them will fulfill the mitzvah. It won't work. They want Kedushah. They want to show Emunah and Hashem. And also see for their own eyes that Hashem Yitbarach runs the world. They give off the gross. That's the real mitzvah. That's the real mitzvah. So, the tzaddikim, or the ones that thought they were tzaddikim, that gave ma'asel, will all ask the question, can anyone here testify that they gave ma'asel through thick and thin? No one was able to get up, except one guy. So you have a room full of people, a few dozens, uh, I didn't really give ma'asel. I gave 6%. I gave 3%. I gave when I could. I gave when times were good. I cheated a little bit. But one guy says, no, no, I did it. I did it my whole life. And he says, and I also want to add, Kvod I didn't tell anyone in the room here, but I also didn't lose my money. I still have all of it. I just felt bad because all my friends went broke. I felt bad telling them I'm the only one that has money. But since you're putting the Torah on the line, I had to, to testify to the Torah. Rabbi Akiva says, it's not only the Tidashir, it's not only to make, become wealthy. It's also for the protection of the money. You want to keep the money? Give Maser. You want to keep what Hashem gave you? Give Maser. Why? He gives you 100% so you give 10 and keep 90 as a payment. But when we don't give, we are saying it's all us. 
We're saying it's all us. So Hashem says, you know what? Let me show you it's not all you. I'm just going to take the 90%. I'm going to leave you with the 10. You get the maser. I'll get the 90% so I can give it to my other kids. That's how you see sometimes someone that made it big. Million dollars a year, two million dollars a year, five million dollars a year, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden he makes 500 bucks a week. What happened? You gave tzedakah, you gave this, you gave that. Not enough. The Gemara Masechet Ta'anit also. It talks about one of the richest men of the land, Nagdimon ben Gurion. Nagdimon ben Gurion was one of the three richest people that lived with Kaaba Savua. And one day, Rabban Yochanan is riding on a donkey and he sees the daughter of Nagdimon ben Gurion. But he sees her going through the feces of the donkeys of the Arabs. He says, who are you? And what are you doing? She says, I'm looking for some chita, some wheat, some remains, some grains, so we could eat. Not only she going through the feces of animals, but it's the animals that belong to the goyim. It could be, couldn't be more worse than that. Because who is your father? And she says, my father is Nakdimon ben Gurion. Rabban Yochanan says, your father is the richest man of the land. How could his daughter get to such place? And she says, he used to be. He used to be rich, but he lost all of his money. And he says, yeah, but what about your uncle? Your uncle was also rich. And she says, yes, but when you combine Taref, with kasher, everything becomes taref. Combine this money with this money, they ended up both losing the money. So Nekmaram Maseret Ta'ani 28 talks about this story and it's mamash shakes up the whole Gemara. Rabban Yochanan asks, how could it be? Your father was one of the people that was the biggest Baal Chesed. How could it be that he gave so much money to Am Yisrael? And he lost all of it. And his own daughter testifies, he gave, but not enough. He gave tzedakah, but at his level, not enough. So also know for anyone that's rich, 10% is not enough for them. 10% is for the common person, average person. Someone that's wealthy, someone that has a lot of money, they have to give money as long as they have what they have, and they're still poor people, they must continue to give. Obviously, all within reason, you don't put yourself into the poor house, but nonetheless, you have to give much more than just 10%. 10% is for the average person. So just so you know, Nagdimon ben Gurion was not exactly an average person. The Gemara says, there's a thing that happened in history where Hashem stopped the sun in its spot one time for Yeshua ben Nun. Did he ever do it again? Yeshua ben Nun got a miracle, special, private, custom-made miracle. Hashem stopped the sun for him. 
Gemara says, yeah, he did it for Nagdimon Ben Gurion also. So Nagdimon Ben Gurion was not your average guy, he was a tzaddik, Kodesh Kodeshim. That's why we talk about it. Because even the Kodesh Kodeshim sometimes make mistakes. Even they make sometimes mistakes. And Rabbi Akiva is telling us here, you want protection for your money? You give myself. Next one is Nedarim Siagla Prishut. We're almost finished with the introduction. Vows. Vows are protective fence for abstinence. Now, in general, you should know it's not good to make vows. Uh, a couple of people come to me and tell me, oh, yeah, how do I cancel a nedel? How do I cancel a vow? I made a nedel, and it's, uh, I want to cancel it. Because I heard what you said in your shiul. I said, what did I say with my shiul? He said, you said that when someone makes a nedel, and they don't fulfill it, it puts their wife and kids at risk to die. When a husband makes a nedel, and he just decides, now nah, you know what, I don't feel like keeping it. It's too much for me. He made a nedel to give $1,000 a month for Kiruv. Six months into it, I don't feel like doing it. He made a nedel to learn Torah two hours a day. Three weeks into it, I don't feel like doing it. I'm busy. I want to watch the game. I want to watch LeBron James dunk the ball a few more times and make his $25 million a year. I don't feel like doing it. And so on and so forth. It makes Nedarim like it's common conversation. And he realizes it's, uh, he doesn't want to do it anymore. So the Gemara says, someone that wants to put his kids and his wife at risk to die, make a Nedarim, and don't fulfill it. So somebody came to a rabbi one time and he says, For the Rav, my wife is killing me. She's driving me crazy. She is mamash, a nightmare. But I don't want to... So the rabbi says, Divorce her then. What's the problem? We have a law in the law. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. It's divorce. Get. It's actually a mitzvah. If you're not happy, things are not going well, she doesn't want to be modest. She doesn't uh, do what she's supposed to do, or the husband doesn't do what to do. There's a get. There's a mitzvah to get divorced. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. Not highly recommended. You should obviously stay married, but if it's not good, there's a mitzvah to do, get divorced. No, no, Kvodarav, I can't get divorced. Because why not? Because I said in the Ketubah, I'm going to give uh, X amount of millions. I don't want to give all these millions. I made the millions. I don't want to give her the money. You have a shortcut? You know, sometimes the Gemara says, there are people that love their money more than their own life. They're willing to die for their money. So the thought of his wife getting his money, he says, I'd rather die than give my wife the money. So the rabbi was smart. He says, okay, no problem. There's a mitzvah in the Torah where it says to make a nedil, make a vow. But if you don't keep it, the sages say your wife and kids will die. Starts with the wife. So make a nedel. You don't have any kids yet. Make a nedel. Don't keep it. And your wife will die. Guy's like, wow, genius. What a tamit chacham. Thank you, Kvodarab. Do you have any ideas of what kind of nedel I can make? He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. Wow, what nedel? 
We need 250,000 to build a mikveh in a community. We don't have a mikveh, a kosher mikveh in a community. And all the women, miskenot, all the ones that are happily married, they have to go far away for a mikveh. So, say you're going to donate the $250,000, but don't donate. Make the nether, but don't donate. Because you know the guy is not going to donate. He's cheapskate. He's scared to go to the bathroom. She doesn't have to buy another sandwich. It's one of those people. So, he says, brilliant idea for the Rav. I make a nether to build the mikveh, to give the money for the mikveh. Now the guy goes home, happy as can be. He looks at his wife and he's like, poor lady doesn't even know what's coming. Poor lady doesn't even know what's coming. She doesn't know. Clock is ticking. Any day a truck can hit her. I'm not keeping this nether. So now, after a couple of days, he's like, oh, you know what, what a miskena, poor lady, she doesn't even know that clock is ticking. You know what, I feel bad for her, that she's going to die soon. So you know what, let me be nice to her. Let me be nice to her for the last few days she has left. However days she has left, let me be nice to her. So all of a sudden, he starts giving her compliments, he buys her a bracelet, because he knows in a week from now, he's going to return it. He doesn't care. He buys her the bracelet, I'm going to return it. He buys it this. He's going to return. He doesn't care. All of a sudden, he's nice to her. And to his surprise, she says, wow, he's so nice to me. She starts becoming nice to him also. Tu-tu-tu, little by little. A month, two months go by. They are lovebirds like they just got married. The guy runs to the rabbi. He says, Kvod Arab, I have a serious problem. The rabbi says, why? What happened? He goes, this, this, my wife is amazing. Oh, Baruch Hashem, good. He goes, no, Kvod Arav. She's going to die any day. How do I stop this? He goes, make the check payable too. So a person who wants to put his wife and kids in jeopardy, chas v'shalom, who wants to be a fool, makes a neder and doesn't keep it. So this is actually very, very important for people to understand. But here he's talking about make a nedel for protection purposes. What does it mean? If you're trying to get holy, you're trying to become holy, but you know your yetzerah, strong. Strong. But you're scared of God. But your yetzerah is strong. So you're balanced. You're scared of God, but yetzerah is strong, really strong. It's okay, you know what? I'll make a nedel. I'm going to study for an hour. I know my Yetzirah doesn't let me study more than a half hour every day, but right now I'm making a nedel, nothing's going to stop. I'm going to make a nedel. Two, study for an hour. Now when after a half hour and the Yetzirah shows up, he says, Yetzirah, I'm sorry, I made a nedel. Even the basketball game with LeBron James on 4th of July is not going to help you. I made a nedel. I'm scared about my kids. I'm scared about my wife. I'm not going to lose my wife for the basketball game. Now it's a different level. Now it's a different level. But don't be a fool and start making nedarim every day. It's better off not to make a nedar and just be your yetzerah naturally. Don't put yourself at risk and chas v'shalom, make foolish things. But the point is, this is for plishu, this is to get to extra, extra level of, of uh, holiness, which we can get to after we've learned all of the alachot, all the mitzvot, after you've done all the basics, then we go to that level. So in a few years from now, we'll start working on that. Now, last one, but not least. 
סייג לחוכמה, שתיקה. A protective fence for wisdom is silence. שלמה המלך, שלמה המלך says in Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool does not seek the enlightenment. He only wishes to reveal his own thinking. When a fool comes to, a, to his rabbi, instead of listening to his rabbi's divrei Torah, what does he do? He tells his rabbi everything he studied. Oh, Kvod you know, I read this in this book, and I read this in that book, and Chazal says this, and this one says that. Okay, if he's your rabbi, he probably already knows it. If he doesn't know it, you should be his rabbi. You want to learn from him, you want to teach him. You want to teach him, be quiet. Quiet. Learn. Rabbi, teach me. Lamdeni. Lamdeni. Kvod Rav, Lamdeni, teach me something. Chazan said it to the point of someone really has a Rav, really has a Rav. Everything he does, including how he goes to the bathroom, is something to learn from. The students of Hillel Azaken said, Kvod Rav, where are you going? And since they kept this Torah, that everything is true Torah, so this is the Torah that we need to learn. He said, Hillel, Kvod Arav, where are you going? He says, I'm going to do a mitzvah. He says, Kvod Arav, what kind of mitzvah? Lamdeni, teach us. I'm going to the bathroom. He said, what kind of mitzvah is this? Going to the bathroom. He says, I'm going to the bathroom because obviously there's employees that built the bathroom. It's a fancy bathroom. And these employees got paid to build the bathroom. So what, I'm not going to use it? Then no one's going no to get more bathrooms. So I'm helping them get panasa. This is the mind of somebody holy, that even his bathroom is a mitzvah. Someone that has a holy rabbi, they connect to the rabbi, teach me. Why did you say this? Why did you say that? Why this? Why? They're not trying to teach the rabbi. They're not this guy that sent me a text message last night. Said, hey, listen, I read this two lines in this one paragraph in this book that's mentioned over here somewhere, and it says, you're doing wrong. I said, well, you know what? It just says three words, and it says there's two ways to rebuke, but there's a lot more details to what he's saying. He says, you want to... Reprove people, you want to rebuke people, do it out of love. If you don't do it out of love, it's not good. There's a lot more you can say about it. I can give you at least a 25-hour sure just about each one of those words. What it means to do it out of love, what it means to do it out of hate. So obviously this Chacham, who's much bigger Chacham than I could ever be, didn't mean to say that the entire conclusion is just this one line. Because no, it's clear enough to me. And he starts telling me that he knows more than me, and he's smarter than me, and he this this in me, and he knows all these tzaddikim, and he has all these books, and he has all this that. And I want for you, he tells me, I'm, I, I'm worried about you. This little, just got out of the diaper, 19-year-old kid, he's worried about me. He's worried about me, he just got out of a diaper. He's learned how to do up properly. He's worried about me because he went to yeshiva his whole life. 
and he's smarter than me, and he knows more than me, and he dismissed me because he knows the tzaddikim. The tzaddikim don't know him, but he knows the tzaddikim. All I know that he does know is how to be a chutzpan. Chutzpan, he knows for sure. The reality is, you want to show you're smart, be quiet. Be quiet. That's how you show you're smart. Why? Because even a fool looks smart when he's quiet. Even the fool in the room who doesn't say anything, everyone thinks he's smart. So imagine if being, if it helped, being quiet helps a fool, imagine how much it helps somebody that's actually smart. This is why Chazal says, Kol mi she'en asur lerachem alav. Someone who doesn't have wisdom, someone who doesn't have da'at Torah, not allowed to be merciful on him. Why? He chose not to. Now we're not talking about somebody that was born in Siberia, where his best friend is the polar bear that comes to visit once a week because he wants to eat humans. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone that lives in a Jewish community, knows there's a synagogue, knows what Torah is, but just chooses not to. Or he just collects a bunch of books but doesn't read them. Or instead of rebuking people that he's supposed to tell them, keep Shabbat, keep Tarah, keep Mitzvot, keep this, he rebukes the people that rebuke them. Like all these heroes on the internet, the, the internet warriors, the Facebook warriors that write stuff against me, or against Rabbi Zrahi, or anyone that does anything good in this world, what do they do? They type against them. Oh, look, he's talking about this. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, look, he's doing this. Ha, ha, ha. Like this one, one imbecile wrote, Oh, look, he got sued in business for a million dollars. He's a criminal. First of all, if you know anything about business, lawsuits are part of it. The more business you do, the more likely you are to eventually get sued. If you've never been sued, that means you pretty much didn't do much business. When you do a $100 million business, you're going to get sued at some point. Even if you're Coca-Cola. Even if you're McDonald's. Even if you're whoever. You're going to get sued at some point. Doesn't mean you're a criminal. Just means people know you have money. They sue you. That's number one. Two, if you actually read what it said on the lawsuit, it said I got sued for a million and a half dollars, right? But it never went to trial. Why? Because the actual claimant knew he had no case. So he settled for $14,000. He sued for a million and a half dollars. But he settled for less than 1% of what he sued for. And the only reason we settled is simply because it would cost us more money to go pay the lawyers to go to court. He asked for settlements of a half a million. He asked for settlements of even 50,000. He even asked for a settlement of 25,000. I told him no. The minute it's one dollar more or the same as the lawyers, I'm going to court 100%. I'll risk the whole million and a half dollars because there's no lawsuit. And there was two like that, two heroes, both friends. So you see the validity of the lawsuit based on the outcome, not based on the claims. The claim, in America you can claim anything. You claim that Obama owes you a billion dollars. You could claim like some idiot claimed that the IRS owes him money. 
He doesn't owe them money. They owe him money. He says, I don't want to pay taxes anymore. You owe me money. So they send him to jail. He can claim whatever he wants. You can claim anything you want in America. Land of the free. Free, free, free. Eventually you go to jail though. So the reality of it is the claims, whatever you want. But if you read what actually happened, the outcome shows you what actually happens. If I lost a million and a half dollars because I got sued for a million dollars, then you got, you got something here. But then you, either way, you still have to read what happened. But if you see that the settlement is less than 1% of what the lawsuit is, and you're still using this as an argument against me, number one, it shows you don't know how to read. So you're still at the first stage of what Rabbi Akiva was when he was Akiva. And two, you don't know anything about business. Go do a $100 million business. Go do a $200 million business. Tell me, let me, let me see you. Go do it. Ready? Go. Go, go, go work for free for three years. Go. Go work for free. Do Zikwara bin for free. People yell at you, people curse at you, but people do chuva. Go. Ready? Go. Go. You want to leave business? Go work for free. Go. No. You got the smart, the books, the tzaddikim, everything. And people have a lot of things to say. Everybody's got a lot of things to say. Ready? Go. So, siagle chokma shtika. Instead of all this nonsense that people keep talking about and typing and saying and texting and everybody's a hero, be smart, be quiet. Who says it? Rabbi Akiva. He says the nonsense that's going to come out of your mouth, they're only going to know it's nonsense. They're only going to know how foolish you are only after you talk. So do yourself a favor and be quiet. So at least they won't know how stupid you are. At least only you know. That's at least going to save you something. At least you keep it to yourself. You don't know you have nothing good to say. Don't say anything at all. You have experience helping people do tshuva? Share it. You've never helped anybody do tshuva? You've never helped people go from being a murderer to being a avrech? You've never helped people stay married? You've never helped people not uh, do abortions. You've never helped people convert. You've never helped people get married. You've never helped people through a financial crisis, health crisis, cancer crisis, a shame and crisis. You never helped them? Keep your mouth shut. Don't tell me about the experience you don't have. Don't tell me about his experience. Because if you were him, I'd listen to you. But you're not him. Him I'd listen to. And one of the tzaddikim, we'll finish with the story. One of the tzaddikim, I believe it was the Chafetz Chaim. He told his students, I have no problem, no problem that you tell people that my chidushim are yours. You take my Torah, you say it's your idea. No problem. You could say to people, I wrote whatever I wrote in the book, you could say you wrote it. No problem. But just don't say that I wrote what you said. No problem for you to say that my work is your work because I know it's true. I could vouch for my work. It doesn't matter if they know I said it or you said it. It doesn't make a difference. Just at least don't ruin my name and desecrate Hashem's name by saying that what the garbage that you wrote, the falsehood that you wrote, I wrote it. Understand? Best thing to do, be quiet. Rabbi Akiva says an enormous amount of knowledge for us today. He tells us first and foremost... Protect your Ketusha. Make yourself holy. Protect your Zera. Protect your modesty. Protect your intimacy. You are a diamond. You must be holy because Hashem is holy. 
The nations have enough reasons to hate us. Don't try to be one of them. Don't try to be part of them. You're separate. You're unique. You are holy. After that, he's giving you some instructions. System for success. Stick to the oral Torah. Stick to the sages. They all won in the end. There's not one sage in history that lost. They all won in the end. Why? They were holy. You want to succeed in business? Give ma'asel. You'll succeed not only in business, but you'll succeed in proving that God runs the world. Because once people see that your $500 a week all of a sudden turn into a million dollars, mathematically it makes no sense. It makes no sense how you became a millionaire making 500 bucks a week. It makes no sense how somebody that makes 100000 a year became a multimillionaire. Doesn't make any sense. Hashem says it doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to make any sense. The next thing he says, don't make foolish vows. Fulfill the Torah simply. But if you have to, and you know you can, go for it. But ask your rabbi first. Ask your rabbi first, am I at this level? Because a lot of us think that we're at a much higher level than what we really are. Most of us believe that we're much holier than what we really are. We're much smarter than what we really are. We're much better than what we really are. We have a warped version of what the vision on the mirror looks like. We think we're better. So ask the rabbi. He knows you a little bit better. He knows more of your flaws. He's looking at you objectively. And last but not least, if you don't know the answer, it's best to just say, I don't know. Don't pretend you know. Where you stand? You know, you know. You don't know, you don't know. But be a sponge. Learn. Learn, 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 learn. Eventually you're going to know. And Bezat Hashem, this will help the Neshamot that left us early get much higher and higher. Will help us get much higher and higher, Bezat Hashem. Sanctify Hashem's name. Bring Am Yisrael back closer and closer to Hashem Yitbarach so we can have a much, much better time in this world and the next.